He's an extraordinarily successful fantasy baseball manager, an NFBC Hall of Famer, a two-time DFS Millie winner. So how does he do it? I'll ask Dave Potts about that and a whole lot more next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, June the 25th. It's show number 30 of the 2021 fantasy baseball season. I'm Patrick Davitt, your host, and we have another great Friday full edition for you. We'll have our feature expert interview with Dave Potts from Roto-Grinder, discussing his method for building a consistent winning record in fantasy baseball, especially DFS. His estimation of Wander Franco and the extremely thorough DFS advice he provides to Roto-Grinders. We'll also have our Market Watch Player News Reports. Harold Nichols has coverage of the National League, including Joaquin Soria goes back to closing in Arizona. Corey Dickerson and Dan Vogelback are headed to the IL. And Ray Murphy has news from the American League, including the latest bad news for Byron Buxton and Adalberto Mondesi. A little discussion of the sticky stuff. And we'll talk about Wander Franco's ascension to the big leagues. We'll also have our regular commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the Minor League Minute, Baseball HQ Minor Leagues analyst Rob Gordon looks at Angels left-hander Reed Detmers. In the Frequent Flyer, Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky looks at Miami right-hander Anthony Bender. Probably throws a lot of curveballs, I hope, anyway. And in Extra Innings, I'll be talking about the possibilities for Wander Franco based on the previous Wander Franco's. It's another big Friday full edition. Thanks for joining us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? It's time to talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this Friday full edition, it's part one of our feature expert interview with Dave Potts from Roto Grinder. Dave, I think it's been quite a while, but you've been on the show before. Yeah, sometime in, uh, you know, the, the world we used to know, it's been at least a couple of years, but uh, thanks so much for having me back. How many teams are you running in full season leagues this year, Dave? Um, so I am down to just two teams this year, Wow, um, which is the, the, the least I've ever done. And part of the reason is I was still not uh, vaccinated at draft time, so I did not go to Vegas for NFBC. So I didn't do any auction leagues. Normally I would have, even in, you know, a slow year, I would do at least a couple of auctions out there as well. Um, but so I only ended up doing main events. Um, and I was still, so in the preseason, I was still a little worried that the beginning of the season was going to be messed up without with COVID. And so I didn't want to do a whole bunch of early drafts. So I didn't do, I didn't do early, uh, like draft champions or cut lines or any of that. Um, so this is still a slow year for me with just a couple main event teams. I saw in the uh, main event that you have one team sort of in the top third of the standings overall and one that's well down the standings. And I'm wondering, you're famous for being diligent. And I wonder, how do you manage to stay focused and motivated to keep grinding that second team that's, you know, pretty well down the standings and, you know, in, in all realism is probably not going to be a contender? Wait, what do you mean? You don't <laughs> think that team's going to win? <laughs> no, I, I don't. I don't think so. I, I hate Un- to break it. To unbelievable! You. That uh, boy, I, this is throwing me for a loop. That was. Uh, I was really banking on a comeback. No, so you know the way I do it. Like every year, regardless of how many teams I have, 
it's always the same percentage. There's going to be some teams doing well and some teams that aren't. Um, it's certainly easier with only having a couple of teams to still play the bad one. You know, we have people, and it's sometimes me in the past, where you've had, you know, 50 teams. And it's pretty hard to mess around with, you know, if you have like 10 teams that just stink and like 10 teams that are great, it's pretty hard to really do much with those bad teams. But at the very least, I go, I will always at least make basic free agent pickups. I'll always be setting my lineups. Like I'm not going to crazy grind out every single, what can I possibly do to get one extra at bat, you know, out of my middle infield spot next Friday um, on a bad team. Um, But I'm always going to be at least making pickups. I'm going to be at least setting my lineup, um, that kind of thing. I'll, you know, I'll, I'll spend my fab money, whether it, it helps me or not. I was thinking about it because uh, I got into this discussion a few years ago with another uh, fantasy baseball owner who did run very, very many teams, and his opinion was, it's my team, I can do what I want with it, and uh, if I've got a team that's uh, clearly an also-ran, I'm going to just drop my interest in it so I can focus where I have a chance to win, which is a perfectly legitimate point of view, I think. But what I wondered about was, in situations where there's an overall component, your lack of activity in your individual league, maybe it doesn't matter in that individual league, although certainly it does to an extent, but it can affect the overall standings because your inaction is maybe allowing some of the other guys in your league to get points that they might not otherwise have had, which, you know, an extra home run here, as we know, in the overall standings can, you know, five stolen bases, four home runs can jump you, you know, 60, 70 points. And from that point of view, it seems like if you signed up for it you really ought to give it your all because you're affecting the entire big race as well as the little race in your own league yeah so here's where i stand on that and i uh, my opinion has changed over the years basically the older i get the less i care about anything like i'm i'm almost impossible to offend anymore like i don't care what anyone i'm just thrilled with everything it absolutely affects things like there's no question that you know winning the overall or, you know, finishing well has something to do with what happens in your league. And people absolutely do benefit from having dead teams in their league. But if you pay for $1,700 for a main event team and you want to draft it and not even look at it once all year, that is so totally your right to do that. Like no one, no one is allowed to say you, you have to update your team. Of course you don't have to. I mean, you should, I would say, but no, you don't have to. It doesn't, it doesn't, outrage me when people just completely throw a team um like eh, you know i don't know what what's going on with these people um you know i've never gotten to that point i've never just completely thrown a team and i doubt i ever would but i really don't i really don't bemoan anyone for doing that like it's a little different to me in in like a home league where you have the same people every year and maybe a lot for some of these people, maybe it's the only league they do and it means something to them. Um, and then you're kind of at risk of where like you have the ability to throw someone out of your league or like, you know, these people, and you can say, listen, if you're not going to play, it's fine, but we'd rather have somebody else take your spot. But in these public leagues, anyone can play. You're paying money to play. It's your money. You do what you want. If you don't want to, if you don't want to bid on free agents, I, I don't think you have to. 
And the flip side of that, Dave, it seems to me is that if it bothers you so much that people are tanking their teams or just dropping their teams and you feel like it's affecting your ability to compete in the overall, then nobody's forcing you to compete in the overall either. You know, and if, if it yeah. really bugs you, then go just go find a single league format where you can be entirely in control of your own destiny, so to speak. And even NFBC has those, right? I mean, you can play in, yeah, uh, absolutely. in, a, in the auction leagues and so forth and put your money where your mouth is and and benefit if somebody in that league decides to throw in his cards that's to your benefit if you're not going to throw in yours so uh, i think there's pathways to do things the way people want to do i think the problem starts to arise when certain participants say i want i want it both ways i want to have me be a, a real active with my team, but I also want everybody to achieve my level of activity because I want them to protect my interests in the, in the bigger picture. And frankly, a lot of the people who make the complaint, it also seems to me are just as likely to benefit from it. Should the heavens or the galaxy or the universe decide that the inactive player is going to be in their league on some occasion once or twice. Yeah. Like the randomness of, you know, when you might be helped or hurt by someone not playing out half the season is no more or less random than whose first round pick gets injured. Like there's going to be randomness to all of this. Um, And I just, I don't think we can try to govern people's activity level in in a league. Yeah. And I think part of the problem might be people want to try to exert some control over the randomness. And when you look at the overall activity, there's so much randomness built into all the nooks and crannies of it. It's, it's very random as an activity. So to worry about this particular element of randomness seems a little bit misguided, I guess is the way I'd put it. Uh, What players do you have so far this year rostered who have really hit it out of the park for you? You should forgive the expression. Um, so the team that's doing well, a um, couple of guys started out well and aren't going to finish well, like Byron Buxton, yeah. or a lot of people like, boy, that was great. Those first couple of months, you're like, hey, and, and then he's, you know, unfortunately, like maybe it just never happens. Um, but like I have kind of my, um, my mode of operating is boring old guys like that's what i'm known for and sometimes boring old guys are not even old like i just like the guys that nobody likes but they're just playing good and they don't cost you anything for example brian reynolds still i don't think anybody thinks brian reynolds is good but i mean he's hitting like 300 with 12 homers and he you know you draft him in the last round almost um like those kind of players are always going to be on my lineup um, and they're just always so easily worth what you pay for them, uh, that I consider them almost like building blocks of my teams, even though I may have picked them in the 15th round or something. Um, you know, my first round pick was, was Trey Turner. Um, and that was very much on purpose. Like I knew I wasn't going to be getting speed. Um, he's been absolutely great. Um, there are not very many guys that hit 300 and are already double, double homers and steals a couple months in Um, really what's made the difference on the team. That's, that's not terrible is just plain dumb luck with closers. Um, I drafted a whole bunch of late relievers knowing that I'm the guy who way overbids on nonsense closers and fab. And I just didn't want to have to do that. So I ended up with like 
my first closer was Ian Kennedy, who turned into like the greatest pitcher in the world for the first couple months. And then I got like Diego Castillo in the 20th round. And in both of my main events, two of my last three picks were Yimmy Garcia and Cesar Valdez. Like Valdez has long since disappeared, but he got a bunch of saves early on. Garcia, to be able to get anything out of those like round 30 type picks, especially in a category like saves, um, has made a huge difference. So that I would say those are that's kind of what's made that good team good, even more so than who the real stars are. When I was drafting one of, I think my uh, Razzball, Razzslam team, it's a draft and hold best ball format. And when I was looking for which closers I wanted, I went for the boring old guys too. And I ended up with Mark Melanson among others, you know, because nobody thinks Mark Melanson's going to do it and nobody ever has thought he's going to do it, but he always keeps doing it. So why not, right? It's worth a, yeah. like you said, a 40th round pick. Yeah. So like, to me, it's kind of uh I mean, it depends on the season, but this year was much more, I knew I wasn't going to go early on a closer. So it was just take a bunch of them and hope a couple of them hit. And then they did um, to the point now that even if I don't get any more saves the rest of the season, like I'm not going to lose that category. Um, and I don't have to be spending, you know, 300 bucks on these nonsense guys who last a week. Right. That's, so that, that's just a problem. Like I know my own weaknesses <laughs> in free agents at this point, And like, that's it. So I would much rather have, at least a few closers, even if they're not good, so that I'm not blowing all my money on nothing. What players have been the most disappointing for you in this season? Um, not counting injured guys, of course. Like, So on the team that stinks, um, I could blame a lot of things. I will blame Louis Castillo. I mean, I think anyone who has Castillo as their ace is, is in a hole. Um, and it, it, he wasn't even... I mean, he did fall to me, but he wasn't just a guy that fell to me. I really liked him. I mean, I, I thought he was going to be good. I still almost kind of do. Um, but you you just can't start out with that guy as your ace and and be okay in, in like a 15 mixed league or something deeper. Um, so that's definitely my, my biggest issue other than – and not even from a fantasy perspective. In real life, it just bumps me out that Corey Seager's hurt. He was, he was my second-round pick on that team, and I just love that guy. Um, and I just miss watching him play baseball. So, um, yeah, it hurts my fantasy team, but I'm not a Dodgers fan. I'm just a Corey Seager fan. Um, and then I've got a bunch of guys that, like, when I look at the team now, like, I don't even know if they're good or not. Like, Jorge Soler, I don't know if he's even supposed to still be on a team or not. Like, it still seems like he should be good. So he's just still in my outfield. Um, Francisco Lindor has finally started coming to life, but he would like those first couple months were really tough to watch. Like I, I've always thought he's going to be fine. And I think now he is fine. Um, but he probably wasn't worth where I picked him. Um, and then almost every one of my pitchers, Patrick is, is <laughs> terrible. So that's, <laughs> um, but none of them, I can't even really call them disappointments. Like I just didn't draft pitchers high other than, so I had Castillo on the bad team. My, air quotes, good team, had Jack Flaherty as the ace, and now he's not even pitching, and he was just kind of okay. So I could give you all my starters as disappointments. Um, oh, but for one more, because you like disappointments, Patrick Corbin. Um, also, maybe he's kind of coming back to life, but goodness gracious. Uh, Castillo and Corbin, that's a great way to 
place in baseball. That's how you start your rotation uh, for sure. And then uh, I, I was talking to somebody who had drafted Castillo and but had also picked up Carlos Rodon, and they thought as a result that karma had kind of evened out because Rodon <laughs> was so much uh, better yeah. than expected and, and Castillo was so much worse. And he was actually fairly optimistic because he said, you know, Rodon looks like he's going to be able to maintain this momentum. And if Castillo gets anything sorted out, all of a sudden it's going to be a, a pretty nice situation to have. Yeah. I've been able to, I haven't been able to pick up anything nearly as good as Rodon, but you know, people have cut some pitchers that I still think are pretty good. Like I've picked up Eduardo Rodriguez and Marco Gonzalez and these guys that in a 15 team mixed league, I, I still want these guys. Um, so I, I'm, you know, these are not superstars. Like I'm not winning an overall with, with the nonsense that I have. But my team will compete with my really super boring old pitching staff. You're probably best known these days for your connection to Daily Fantasy from your track record, of course, and your recommendations articles at Roto-Grinders, which if they're not legendary, they should be. Uh, how are you doing this season in DFS? Um, it's been pretty good. Um, I would say it, it's always very up and down. Like That's just the nature of it. Um, but as long as you look at things on a full season platform, like, like, I don't think of a daily game as a daily game. Like if you ask me any one day, like I may have done terrible yesterday or the day before, but on the season, um, I'm doing just as I was, ex would expect to do. Um, basically you just have to learn to take the long-term view and not see it as a daily game, um, but yeah, for the full season, it's it's going great. I've often wondered if the back in the day, Ron Chandler used to try to invent various formats of leagues because one of the big complaints he was hearing from his customers was that a full season is too long. I fall out of the race too early and I can't get back in. This is pro especially true in single league formats. And so he started figuring out ways to shorten the term by redrafting on the first day of the month every year. You'd keep five of your guys and then draft a whole bunch of guys around them and constantly adjust and, and try to keep up that way, which was pretty interesting. And I've thought that there might be a possibility in some way of organizing a year-long daily league where you put in a daily mm. roster every day. Maybe everybody has to have a set four hitters, two pitchers that they have to keep for the whole year and then build in around those guys and total up your points for the year. And the guy at the end of the year who has the most points wins, which tests your acumen in the daily format, but also in your ability to you know plan ahead and those kind of things. And every successful DFS player I know says the same thing that you said, Dave. It's not a daily game. It's a year-long game with daily components or daily episodes. Yeah, it's just... Uh it's a different thing than like, if you don't play it and aren't really familiar with it, it's, it is much more long-term than it seems like. Um, and kind of to what you said with like when Ron did the, you know, the single month leagues or a couple months somewhere in the world exists the idea of the perfect fantasy league. And I don't know what it is yet. Like it's somewhere, maybe it's, you know, a 10 daily. I don't know what it is. Like somewhere in there is the right mix for, it's not too long where like you can't get burned by your first three pick getting injured, but you're not quite as random as what happens in one day. Um, I mean, I like that general concept that 
that Ron was going for way back then of like, hey, let's try what happens if we do a month? What happens if we do a couple of weeks? Like somewhere is is the perfect format. And um, but I don't know what it is. If I did, I would tell you. And I, what I, when I run into Ron once in a while, I'll, I'll say, you know, you, you got to a monthly league, you were talking about a weekly league, you could have invented DFS if you'd only just kept the thought process <laughs> going to its ultimate rational uh, extreme and take and then it we, down to a daily. Uh, you wouldn't be able to talk to him anymore. He'd be living on his private island. That's uh, right. Yeah. <laughs> someone feeding him grapes. <laughs> That's right. When I read your recommendations articles at Roto-Grinders, I get the feeling that they kind of are an offshoot of the research that you're probably doing anyway as part of your own preparation for playing as uh, extensively as you do. How big is the overlap between what you're doing as game prep and what you're doing as article prep? So the way I do it now, it's absolutely 100% overlap. Like it's the exact same thing. Um, the point of, of my article, um, I'm really not trying to tell people who to play today like i'm really just trying to teach two things one i'm trying to teach a lot of dfs players don't know anything about baseball like people who listen to you know subscribe to baseball as here play season-long baseball like they know all the ins and outs of baseball they know the players they know the teams they know the stats they know what strikeout rate is good they know what strikeout rate is bad like a lot of dfs players especially new to sports or that play a bunch of sports you know, they don't, they may not have even heard of certain players coming into the year. They don't know that Bo Bichette is going to be good until it happens. They don't know what ISO is, um, what's an XERA versus an ERA. So I do try to kind of explain all that to people who may not get it, who don't come from a baseball background. But then as far as playing DFS, um, I'm trying to make it where I walk you through my thought process of figuring out the slate. And I like I will tell you this is who I like today. This is who I'm playing. But it's not a hey, you should play this guy today because there's so many options. You can go any which way you want. Um, it's really a, a walking through the okay. This is what the slate looks like. I can break it up this way. I got this many pitchers I like. I got this many teams I like. I got this many you know this one batter really stands out today. Or the top ten batters are all basically tied. So just play one of the ten. And here's who I like. Um, it's, it's very much a big picture look, but the research I used to get to that is the same research that I do even on days when I'm not writing an article, but, but playing. I, I, when I started playing DFS and I didn't play for long uh, because I, I just, uh, it made me so miserable when I didn't do well, which was most of the time that I thought I don't need a mood killer in my life like this. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I recognize my limitations. I actually won the tout wars the first time they did a, a daily tournament and it was, clearly just uh, luck <laughs> that's all the only thing i could say and i think you'd agree that most of the time when you're in a one day final for any kind of tournament a lot of luck goes into it uh, you can re be really lucky uh you, you told a story once about the uh, water main break in colorado uh, that helped you in, in a, a tournament situation and i got lucky in my final game because um, uh, Cleveland batted around and the guy got a second yeah. at bat, you know, that, that kind of thing against the wrong hand pitcher, everything about it was wrong and it still worked out. So those kind of things. So I guess when I looked at in those days, the articles that came out about advice, they were not what you're doing. They were like, here's my nine guys I pick. 
with one mm-hmm. sentence about why in each case. And when you do it, it's here's the 40 guys I'm looking at with a paragraph each. And so the thought process comes through more than just like a, uh, I'm thinking of back in the horse racing days when I used to do that, um, the the uh, tout sheets that they'd, they'd sell you for a dollar when you walked in the door and they'd just have the names of the horses and nothing else because it may, may be a line of, of analysis. So the depth of what you're doing kind of contributes to the thought process of how it should be done, it seems to me, more than just, you know, Joe Smith says draft this guy, so I'll draft that guy. Yeah, that's that's the goal. And like, I want to be doing something useful. Like, I don't have any interest in just being a tout for the sake of doing it. Like, there's plenty of places that just list, hey, here's the guys you should like today. Like, there, if that's what you want, you don't have to read the thousands of words that I write. Like, you really don't. Like, <laughs> we've got lists. There are lists of good plays everywhere. Um, I, I'm really interested in making people better players and having some fun. Like I, I goof around a lot. Like it's supposed to be entertaining both for me and for people reading it. Um, like not just in DFS, like DFS season long, anything like a lot of times I feel like so many of us has forgotten that this is fun. Like I, I'm going to, I'm going to have a little fun. I'm going to put goofy dad jokes in my articles while talking about something useful. Um, so basically I just decided when I started doing this, that it, it was going to be more of a teaching. Uh, let me show you what I'm doing. Let's learn this together rather than just a, a list of plays. I, I wouldn't have any interest in doing that. And I think the fact that you try to make it entertaining also keeps listeners or readers involved after the reading itself has made them the better players that you would like them to become. And maybe to some extent, they don't need your advice as much as they used to, because you've taught them how to fabricate their own advice, but they're still going to come back and read because they get a laugh or they get a chuckle or they see something that they haven't thought of before those kinds of things. It's a, it's a neat trick to, to try to master because at baseball HQ, when I started there, Ron said, this is a teach a guy to fish thing. Mm-hmm. We're not giving them fish, you know, filet of fish burgers. We're teaching them, here's a rod, here's a hook, here's some bait. Go fish for yourself. And part of the paradox of how he arranged it was, if you do it well enough, they don't need you anymore and they stop subscribing. <laughs> right. So so uh, I commend you for putting the effort into it to maintain that readership through means other than just providing them with the uh, tools they need to win. Yeah, it's it's a lot of fun. And um, as long as, as long as I enjoy it and people enjoy it, I will, I will keep doing it. One last question about DFS. And I alluded to this earlier. It used to put me in a foul mood, especially if I got a bad beat uh, and I wasn't playing volume. I was playing one or two lineups a night and you know, you, you get towards the end of the night and you think, Oh my gosh, I've got a chance to win. And then somebody in your lineup goes over four or your pitcher takes four and runs in an inning or something. And the whole thing comes tumbling down to the ground. How do you, you play a much higher volume. I've read in your column as many as 300 lineups per day. And how do you not get emotionally involved in it and, and brought down by the days that are bad? Cause you said there are days that are bad. There are days that are good. Yeah. It, that was quite a learning process and it still is like, there are times when I need to just take a break for a few days. Um, but basically I've gotten to the point where I just don't scoreboard watch like, I'll go to bed before 
like I don't stay up and watch the games every day. Like I'll just, you know, wake up the next day and see what happened. Um, I, I just have gotten to the point where I don't have to sit there and watch everything and take the ups and downs. Cause you, you just know with baseball, like you say, one swing of the bat moves you a hundred places in the standings. Um, so after, I don't know, but it was a couple of years ago, I got to the point where like, okay, I don't have to sit here and watch this. Like, I know what I'm doing. I'm doing it all for a reason over the long run. It's going to come out this way. Um, unless it's a, you know, a specific big contest that I'm interested in. I kind of just let it go and, and just see what happened the next day. That seems like the, the sensible approach to it. If, if you know what I mean, it, it's very easy, especially when there's money on the line. And, and I imagine there are some people who play the game with the perhaps false expectation that this is going to be their retirement fund, or this is going to be how they're going to put their kids through school or something like that, which puts a lot of added emotional pressure on the outcomes, but being able to walk away from it. And, and as you said, go to bed, not even knowing how you did and just find out the next morning and get back to it. And in a business-like sort of fashion, you learn to take the ups and the downs. So you're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Dave Potts from Rotor Grinders. Dave, the big news of the week was the call-up of infielder Wander Franco by Tampa. I've heard some analysts refer to Mike Trout had a fairly slow start. Vladdy Guerrero Jr. was not what he is today on his first you know, go round in the big leagues. So when you look at a Wander Franco coming into the league, how aggressive are you going to be and how aggressive do you think players should be in getting after a player who is really still completely unproven at the big league level? So, yeah, generally speaking, I am the anti-children person of the world um i mean you know babies are okay <laughs> but i generally don't like children um i i almost never draft young guys but it is a different thing when it comes to them coming up in the middle of the year and you're talking about free agent bidding on a guy to me i'm much more willing to goof around with spending you know essentially a huge chunk of my free agent budget on a guy that just maybe might be great but even more specifically than that like there's nothing that gives me more confidence than his kind of plate discipline like when a guy like Acuna came up um you could see the path to him struggling early whether it happened or not like with Franco I mean I don't see how he can be terrible, even if he's not good. Like when you don't strike out at all, uh, I mean, maybe he hits 250 with very little power. Even so, like, I don't think this is a guy that kills you. Um, and it's pretty useful. Um, like, you know, he's a switch hitter, which helps a lot of things. He should get a good batting order spot. It's a good team. You can see how he could steal a bunch of bases. You can see how he could have some power. You could see how he could hit 300. Like one of something is going to work out for him. I feel like he should have, or he'll at least score a run. Like something good is going to happen with this guy. Um, so basically, as much as I'm supposed to be not liking children, um, I, I think this is a guy you spend on. Um, 
I'm just I'm 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 on board with with him right now. And how accurately, Dave, in your experience, do the DFS platforms uh, price newly arrived players like Wander Franco and and apply their algorithm to figure out what makes you know that that perfect balance point where the over under is just right, where it becomes a tough choice. It's, they're all tough choices if the players are priced correctly, and and you call them. I think we'll talk about this later, but you call them chalky when they're fairly obvious picks. How well do DFS platforms, do you think, price a newcomer like this? Um, so the past couple of years, they have really slacked off on this. And like they flat out missed it on, on Franco. He was bare minimum salary the first two days on DraftKings, $2,000, which is ridiculous. Like Fernando Tatis is $6,000. Like this is like $2,000 is usually a part-time player, like a backup catcher. Um, now they adjust really quickly. This is his third day in the league. He's up to 3,800. And tomorrow he'll probably be 4,000. Um, but they did absolutely miss it early on. We've seen it a couple of times with rookies this year. Um, so unfortunately, there's really no edge to that. Like everybody knows what's going on now. There aren't there aren't a whole bunch of people that have no idea what's happening playing DFS. So everyone was playing front. It's not like you were sneaking this by anybody. Um but still, when someone of his caliber is minimum salary, he's there's still some value there because not everyone's going to play him. And like it was just a clear mistake on him. Um, so I have I, I think you've got to be quite willing to play young guys in DFS because they are generally underpriced. Um, and like I say, they'll adjust quickly, especially if he does well, um, but not quite quick enough. Different for pitchers than hitters. Sometimes, yes. Uh, so, like when Alec Manoa came up, for right. example, the, the very first day he pitched, he ended up getting rained out, and he was down at like near minimum salary. They missed it. But by the next day, they had him up like way too high. Like they, they corrected immediately. Like somebody noticed it. Um, but it's more often that they'll catch the, the good rookie pitcher and price him up a little bit than with the hitters. They usually just have him too low. Dave, this has been super interesting so far. I'm glad you're here. Maybe you could take a breather. We'll tend to the National League and American League news with Nick and Ray, and we'll get back to you in a second for part two, and we'll talk DFS in detail. Sounds great. Dave Potts writes for Roto Grinder, and he'll be back a little later on in the show for part two. Coming up right next, we have our Market Watch Player News Reports. Nick with the National League News, Ray with the American League, next on Baseball HQ Radio. You worried about getting fined for the He's going out to get fined. I shouldn't get fined a dog not penny. He screws something up, but I get fined for it. He makes a bad call. All I'm doing is telling him in the dugout the ball's high. He's got rabbit ears and looks over at me, and then he throws me out of the game. Then he tells me I want showtime. Who should get fined? Why don't umpires get fined? I get fined. I can't throw him out. That's what bothers me about the game. Baseball HQ Radio. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our Market Watch Player News Reports. Ray Murphy is on deck with the American League Report. And leading off, it's our National League News and our old friend, Baseball HQ Pitcher Matchups Analyst, Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Patrick. 
Let's start in Arizona. The Diamondbacks have uh, sent down right-hander Stefan Crichton, who was acting as their closer. He gets uh, punted to the AAA level. Uh, they recalled an outfielder, Nick Heath. But uh, the question is, I guess, not that there's going to be a ton of saves going around in Arizona, but who's going to get them? Well, it's been an open question over the last month as to who the anointed closer was in Arizona. And as the uh, Diamondback lost more and more games, made it really impossible for us to determine where the next save opportunity would go. Recent usage suggested that maybe uh, Joachim Soria would move ahead of Crichton, and the sending Crichton down seemed to feel that uh, that that feeling. Uh, that said, the opportunity for Soria is likely limited. He can expect to have a new home before the trade deadline, uh, and uh, who knows how many games will be saveable uh, before that happens. But in the meantime, expect him to be asked to be expect him to be asked to protect whatever save ops they might happen to have in Arizona. Staying in the bullpens in Cincinnati, uh, T.J. Antone is back in the driver's seat there because the Reds have uh, put Lucas Sims on the DL. Yeah, Sims is reportedly likely to be sidelined for at least a month, thinning a Cincinnati bullpen that's already short on proven arms. Antone was recently returned from the DL himself and likely to see increased save opportunities with Sims sidelined. Uh, veteran Brad Brock's role could also expand with increased high leverage work. Antone has been dominant with a 150 BPB and some elite underlying indicators, including uh, stri- strike rate and ground ball rate. Uh, Rock has been effective since being promoted from AAA in May, has a 16 uh, w- strikeout, 7 walk, and 13 innings, although his uh, 68% first pitch strike rate relies his 4.7 control, suggesting his walk rate might dip as the sample, uh, the sample grows larger. Uh, Brock's ground ball, ground ball tendency likely to make him a preferred option in a leverage situation with runners on base. It's interesting that Tom Kephart says the 68% swinging strike rate uh, belies the 4.7 control. I wonder how confident we can be that it's not going to be the other way around. Yeah, well, it's always hard to tell, but, you know, if, 60, if 68% of those balls that pitches are coming in as strikes on the first pitch, you would think the control would go down from 4.7, but you know, you never know. The 4.7 is what's there, and so uh, we we need to watch that. Seven uh, seven walks and 13 innings pitched. Uh, you know, that, that's a bit of a concern. I think I said swinging strike rate, but yes, uh, first pitch strike rate. Uh, moving on, uh, we talked earlier this season, Nick, about uh, being gomberized. Uh, that is having Colorado Rockies left-hander Austin Gomber in your lineup to hang up nine earned runs in a third of an inning or whatever it was. Well. Uh, Teams that stuck with him actually were pretty fortunate. He, he turned things around pretty nicely, but now we've been gomberized in a different way. He's gone to the injured list with a forearm tightness problem. The team recalled a right-hander named Joe Harvey from AAA and put another player, Jordan Sheffield, a right-hander, to the 60-day IL. What's going on here in Colorado, and what will uh, happen with Gomber on the shelf? Well, yeah, you know, Gomber actually became uh, uh, surprisingly effective, uh, 3.68. 3.81 uh, ERA, XERA through 78 innings pitched. But right now we have no projection as to how long he's going to be out. Uh, and the Rockies have two days off this coming week, so we may not know for a while who his replacement is going to be in the rotation. Uh, Harvey has tossed 21 major league innings pitched over the last two seasons, hosting a 4.22, 5.34 ERA, XERA all out of the bullpen. So uh, we'll have to just wait and see, I think, what happens in terms of Gomber's replacement. But those who are thinking Gomber had become something special uh, are going to have to wait a while.
In San Francisco, the Giants activated right-hander John Brebbia from the 60-day IL. He had some elbow issues and optioned a left-hander Connor Menez to AAA. Also, at the same time, they transferred right-hander Aaron Sanchez to the 60-day IL. He's got problems with his biceps, always bad news, but also finger issues. Uh, What's going to go on in San Francisco with all of these moves focusing on pitching? Well, Brebbia is making his 2021 debut after missing all of 2020 while rehabbing from Tommy John surgery. He owned a strong 3.12 ERA, over 176 career innings pitched out of the pen over the three years prior to the injury. Uh, the biggest news here is that Sammy Long, 14 innings pitched, six runs allowed, 16 uh, strikeouts, three walks over three starts, now seems at least like a short-term rotation fixture in place of Sanchez uh, and Logan Webb, who remains on the aisle with a strained shoulder. Long is worth a flyer in most leagues for any owner needing starting pitching, but Practice them very carefully. Very little is certain with the Giants at the moment. Uh, their surprising depth is, uh, is, uh, uh, can make changes happen uh, on the spur of the moment. Uh, so keep an eye on it. Uh, Sammy Long sounds like a good bet for now, but uh, things can change quickly in San Francisco. Jock Thompson on the story for playing time today actually mentions that Baseball HQ's uh, innings pitch projections have been really shuffling around a lot lately. So if you're interested in what's going on in San Francisco, that's something you really need to keep a close eye on, I think. Uh, In Arizona, catcher Carson Kelly was having a really fine year, uh, really surprising a lot of people, not surprising some people who believed in him all along. But now he's gone on the 10-day IL. He's got a broken wrist, and that's not good news for a hitter, and it looks like it's going to be a relatively longer-term thing. The team also recalled infielder Josh Van Meter and a catcher, Dalton Varsho, kind of a catcher-outfield type guy from AAA. They sent right-hander Kevin Ginkel, who used to be in the closer mix, talking of Arizona closers earlier. A uh, lot, lot of moving parts here. Nick, what's going on? Uh, Kelly is expected to miss what they call significant time. So we, in turn, have made a significant reduction in his playing time uh, at this point. In fact, a 45% reduction in playing time for Carson Kelly. Um, and they're expected to use both Stephen Vogt and Dalton Varsho behind the plate in Kelly's absence. Varsho was Arizona's number two prospect entering the 2020 season, but has struggled over two tours of duty with the, with the Major League team. Over 142 Major League at-bats, uh, Dalton Varsho has a 212 expected batting average, 70, 97 PX. Uh, power index. Over 80 at-bats at Reno in 2021, he's been hot. Nine homers, a 1.118 OPS. Uh, Two cautionary notes on the Reno experience. It's a small sample, and Reno is one of the best hitting venues in the minors. Uh, Veteran vote has a 230 expected batting average, 118 PX, over 120 at-bats this season. Uh, Despite vote's better performance uh, at the major league level, expectation is that Arizona will give the majority of playing time to Varsho. Van Meter has been up and down a few times over the past couple of seasons. So far in 2021, he's 11 for 69 with a homer. Expected to play a utility role for the Diamondbacks. Uh, Ginkle has long been a closer in waiting, and he continues to just disappoint. So far in 2021, a 6.35 earned run average, 4.70 expected earned run average, 77 BPB. He'll probably be back at some point this season, but the chances that he'll return any kind of decent value are diminishing day by day. I was looking at Dalton Varsho's record this year. He's uh, had 48 at-bats, just seven hits. He's batting 146, Nick. And my first thought was nobody bats 146. 
And uh, sure enough, I looked, his hit rate's only 22%. We'd expect that to come up. His uh, contact rate is only 67%. So that kind of drags it back down. And it, and I looked, and his expected batting average is 174. So if anybody's really expecting a, a ton of production from Dalton Varsho, I think it's more like wishful thinking than it is a projection of something that's likely to happen. Yeah, I think absolutely you're right on that. We, you know, we thought Dalton Varsho might really be be special. Uh, it doesn't look like that's going to happen anytime soon at this point. He's got to get make better contact uh, than he's been making, and uh, so far he's he's really struggling at the major league level. Interestingly enough, one of the reasons people liked Dalton Varsho, Nick, was that he had a bit of a power speed combo and. Uh, he seems to have shown that in his limited time in the majors, a 119 expected power index, just 58 actual, but also his speed scores, 103 for speed, 116 for roto speed. So that's well above the, the league average. And maybe there's some stolen bases there. I don't know. He's a 100% stolen base guy with 13% stolen base opportunities. That's not bad. No, not at all. I mean, that, that was one reason there was a lot of interest in Bar Show was a catcher who can steal bases. Oh, my. Yeah. But, uh, you know, at this point, not getting a whole lot of opportunities because he's not getting on base enough uh, to, to cash in on any of those things. Can't steal first, as they say. Uh, in Miami, Nick, it looks like Marlins outfielder Corey Dickerson's going to be in a walking boot for three weeks, uh, and then he'll be reevaluated with that foot injury, according to what manager Don Mattingly told reporters earlier this week. So what happens with Corey Dickerson uh, walking around in a, in a boot? Yeah, it sounds like Dickerson will be out at least until August, so uh, we've reduced his playing time further. Uh, his absence seems to open a path to even more playing time for recently called Jesus Sanchez. That assumes that Sanchez can improve on his 5-for-22 with one homer start since being recalled. And of real concern is the fact that he has zero walks and nine strikeouts uh, thus far in those, uh, those 22 at-bats. My wife and I like to watch uh, Blue Jays games in the evenings, and they just finished a set with uh, Miami, and Sanchez hit a home run, and Nick, if it was the first and only time you ever saw this guy, and for me it was, I was mightily impressed. That ball went practically into orbit. It was it was really hit hard, But and of course I started being very interested in this Jesus Sanchez guy, but when you look under the hood, there's not as much there as it might seem. But boy, oh boy, when he, when he put a hit charge into it, it really went distance. We talked about Sanchez, I think, a week or two ago, and and I noted that he had made improvements uh, at every level as he moved up. And so, uh, you know, this this kind of difficult start for Sanchez, I think, is nothing new. But he seems to be a, a very coachable kind of guy, uh, and and may and may be able to use that talent that you saw in that ball that, uh, that just screamed out of the ballpark. And uh, a big muscular guy too, so he has that kind of build, like. Uh, um... John Carlos Stanton type of build, maybe even a little more muscular in the upper body. Looks like he can hit. I guess we'll have to see if he actually can. It may, might be worth a flyer. Uh, Milwaukee Brewers put first baseman Dan Vogel back on the 10-day IL. He's got a strained left hamstring. This seems to create an opportunity for the all-but-forgotten infielder Keston Hiura. Yeah, his, Vogel, his injury does produce another opportunity for Hiura. Promoted from AAA and the corresponding roster move and Vogel back went on the IL. Uh, he has struggled in multiple previous stints with Milwaukee in 2021, showing an inability to control the strike zone. He's been contact challenged throughout his brief major league career, although his contact uh, rate has dropped noticeably each successive season. Uh, it wasn't the June 23rd lineup and indicators likely to get a shot to be Vogelback's primary first base replacement. Uh, he's going to have to produce and make better contact 
uh, though, or, or, or the uh, Brewers may uh, have to look for some other option. In St. Louis, Nick, the Cardinals optioned outfielder Lane Thomas to AAA earlier this week and called up an outfielder named Lars Newtbar. I used to have those when I was a kid. I loved a good Lars Newtbar. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Newtbar gets called up from AAA. They also sent down left-hander Bernardo Flores. Um, this Newt Bar seems to be uh, tearing it up in AAA at least. Well, you know, Newt Bar was not among the Cardinals' top 15 prospects before the 2021 season. But uh, at Memphis, a 987 OPS. Uh, and and listen to this, it played errorless, error, errorless ball. Easy for you to say. Right field. Yeah, right, yeah. <laughs> the expectation is that he'll slide in as Lewis's fourth outfielder. But with the Cardinals' other outfielders struggling offensively, he could earn substantial playing time. Looking at what we talk about him in call-ups, uh, a 23-year-old out of El Segundo, California, 6'3", 210 pounds, uh, pretty good size, though not much more of a hitter than or but more of a hitter than a masher. Uh, hit tool is at least average, likely above average. 18.3% uh, strikeout rate, 14% walk rate this season for AAA Memphis. His speed works in the outfield, and he can man all three positions. But uh, makes uh, he, may, he makes sense more speed-wise probably on the corners than he does in center field. He'll run into a few on the bases, but won't be a significant contributor in terms of stolen bases. Whether or not he's a major leaguer will likely depend on his power output. And right now, despite five home runs, one double, over 79 at-bats, he doesn't project to even fringe average game power. Guys with solid contact ability can improve launch angle without Without uh, bottoming out their hit tools, and Newt Bar could certainly improve in this regard. But absent any movement in the power, he's likely tops out as a fourth outfielder or a second division starter at best, who will give you a solid on-base percentage. Uh, hitting righties well, St. Louis is struggling in that regard. So it makes sense to give him a shot and see if he's got more in the tank. Maybe someone just to track at this point. And it is interesting that a lot of those uh, call-ups blurbs were actually written before the season and might not reflect the fact that he's had this 987 OPS in AAA this year. Yeah, that's certainly possible. So that, that OPS in, uh, in AAA is, is certainly something to look at uh, and, and, might, and make him, makes him worth some attention. All right, Nick, thanks very much for helping us out in an interesting week. We'll talk to you again in seven days' time. All right, thank you, Patrick. Harold Nichols is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com and covers the National League for us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Over we go to the American League and Baseball HQ co-general manager and columnist Ray Murphy. Ray, welcome back to the show. Good to be here, PD. How are you? I'm doing well, thanks. Doing fine. In fact, a beautiful weather here up in Waterloo, Ontario for the last couple of days. Going to get out on that deck, drink some beer. Everything's going to be good. I'm really looking forward to the weekend. Um, speaking of looking forward to the weekend, uh, I imagine on Friday there's going to be one of the great fab rushes of all time uh, as leagues where Wander Franco was not already rostered uh, are going to be lining up to throw their money at, uh, at the young shortstop in the Tampa organization who was called up earlier this week. Home run, three-run homer in his first game. I don't know if you saw the footage of his dad cheering. Uh, oh, yeah. Filming the whole thing. It was quite a moment for, for Wander Franco and for Tampa and for anybody who happens to already have him on the roster. But uh, what do you think is going to happen this weekend when the fab bidding opens? Yeah, I, I don't know that I have any leagues where he's actually available. I, I'm generally not somebody who advocates sitting on somebody from draft day until, you know, now, mid-June, right? That's a that's a long time to tie up a roster spot, but people who did that probably feel pretty good about things right now. But yeah, if he's available this weekend, uh, 
certainly there's going to be a stampede, and but both for what we've seen from Franco, plus already in two nights, plus the uh, you know the, the the specter of you don't know what else you're going to get down the road. I'm not sure that uh, if you're trying to calculate whether you should hold Frank your Fab for for the trade deadline and cross your fingers as to what you get, or get or jump on Franco now. You jump on Franco now because you get an extra six weeks of Franco, right? It's almost double the time you'll get from a July 31st acquisition. Well, that's exactly right, and that's the big advantage of landing Wander Franco, and I imagine lots of people are going to bet on it, and those who don't have enough fab to outbid everybody else are going to be a little bit sorry. But the question is, suppose you land Wander Franco, what is the legitimate expectation? There's 88 or 87 games left in the race season. What can we expect from Franco, assuming he plays regularly? Yeah, so it's a good time to sort of reset where our projections are, where our playing time projections are, what we think of him as a prospect. You know, he's not just a top prospect. He is the top prospect, right? Uh, you know, number one on our prospect ranking list for a couple of years now, even though he's just 20 with a, you know, I just looked up his birth date of March 1st, 2001, which kind of boggles my mind. But uh, regardless, uh, you know, we rate him as a, you know, as our highest prospect rating, a, uh, a 10, which is a Hall of Fame upside with a, a C likelihood rating, which is a 50-50 likelihood, which, you know, 50-50 for a Hall of Famer sounds pretty good. That's probably a little uh, probably a little optimistic, but, you know, it conveys the uh, – it's meant to convey the upside, not to actually make a Hall of Fame prediction. And I think that sort of underscores uh, the upside nicely. And then you look at what he did in his first two nights, right? You know, he golfed, he golfed a home run down the left field line on a – breaking ball that was down. Um, I might even be, he doubled as well, uh, but I, I might be more impressed with the three walks and one strikeout in two nights. And admittedly it was Red Sox pitching, which is, uh, you know, prone to putting people on base, but uh, you know, he's flashed all the signs early that this is not going to be uh, Jared Kelnick over 39 and back to triple A kind of situation. Yeah, I didn't think it was going to be either. And of course, as you mentioned, Wander Franco is the top prospect in baseball, and it's he's a decent fielder apparently. But the, it's the bat that's that's got everybody really excited. All field power, line drives all over the place. He can run uh, quite a bit. Uh, he's a really good offensive player. But having said all that, Mike Trout was a really good offensive player and a pretty good prospect, and he struggled in his first eighty-eight games. If you look at his career. Vladimir Guerrero in his first 88 games, uh, sort of the most recent Wander Franco comp that I could think of. And, you know, he was okay. 274 batting average, 13 homers, 51 RBIs. That's a very solid performance, but it's not otherworldly. You have to go back, I think, to Jordan Alvarez to get a guy who had, you know, 80 plus games in his uh, career start and was really outstanding in the 25, 26 home run range, something like that, and nearly uh, maybe 100 RBIs. Uh, I think I lost Tout Wars that year because somebody else rostered him and I was too chintzy on my bid the week before he got called up. So really the odds are stacked against Wander Franco being a real true difference maker, unless of course he's replacing somebody on your roster who is not anywhere near as good, then he makes that kind of difference. Let's put some concrete numbers around it. I'm looking at the projection that we have up on the site right now, which is for 75% playing time. Which you know sounds pretty good. There's a there's some hedge in there that he slumps or gets shut down. You know has to uh, 
you'll get sent back down or something like that. It doesn't seem likely right now, but 75% is a, a near everyday player. And for 259 at-bats, we've got him with 10 homers, 31 RBIs, and a, a very good 296 batting average for the balance of the season. So you're right, not a difference maker, not necessarily somebody who's going to win you his win you your league on your own. But to your point, that may very well be better than what you have in your middle infield slot now. The other thing we should point out that I find interesting is that in his first two nights in the majors, the Rays played him in two different positions. They started him at third base against the lefty, and then the next night against Garrett Richards, they moved him moved him back over to shortstop, which is his quote-unquote natural position. But in addition to providing multi-position flexibility for those of us in fantasy leagues, and shortstop third base is a good one because it gets you All both middle and corner infield. Yeah. Um, on top of that, I think it speaks to what the Rays think he can handle because the easy thing to do would say would would be to say, Look, this kid's got enough on his plate. He's you know he's not even of drinking age yet. Let's just plug him at shortstop and leave him there. But they said, nah, we're going to move him around. We're going to put him at short. We're going to put him at third. We might even see him at second a couple of times. And you know they're 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 doing everything they can to express confidence in him. And just from my from the eyeball test for two nights, I can't blame him. I think I read in the Baseball HQ call-ups report on Wander Franco that uh, some scouts or some analysts, at any rate, see him long-term as a third baseman because of his size and and the challenges of playing shortstop uh, in modern baseball, moving all over the place as they do. So it could be that they are kind of using this not only as an opportunity to keep him fresh and interested in the game, but to find out where he fits in best in their long-term plans. Totally. And, you know, in the, in the, in the age of shifting, as long as we're allowed to shift, you know, the, uh, the third baseman plays at shortstop quite a bit, the shortstop plays in right field quite a bit. So maybe I'm being old school and not making a big deal out of in making a big deal out of this at all. And it's not like they lack for alternatives too. They've got Bruhan still a shortstop sitting down in the in the minor leagues. They have Taylor Walls, who's who's been okay when he was the first call up to play shortstop, and he's acquitted himself fairly decently, especially with the glove. So it may be that uh, we haven't seen the last of the moving around in Tampa until they settle on something, and they may never settle on something. Maybe they're front office policy wonks and number crunchers have said, you know, the best way to use these guys is to mat- mix and match them according to a game-by-game sort of decision-making process. Yeah, that's clearly the organizational ethos, right? And, you know, when, you, when we sit here and try to figure out what the ripple effects are for playing time for Frank for Franco's arrival, you know, the, the cascading effects go quite literally through the whole roster. Because like you said, Wall has been holding down shortstop with the glove and he's still going to get some playing time. Joey Wendell's been playing second or third, uh, but he's going to sit against lefties, and that creates some time for Franco. Brandon Wow has been the entrenched second baseman, but you know now Wendell might move over there. Wow might sit more, especially against lefties. Wow uh, against the righty the other night moved all the way out to right field. So we're gonna, you know, they're gonna plug anybody they they, they think can help them win anywhere they want. And to your point, it's fascinating from a long term perspective because. The log jump, log jam just gets worse when Bruhan comes, and you know they, they, it, it would seem like this team is begging for some kind of consolidating trade or something. But you know you're not going to trade Franco, you're not going to trade Bruhan. Uh, those guys, you know, you're probably you're probably even going to keep Wall as a defensive shortstop. Uh, you know he might be. Uh, you know, I hesitate to ha- hang the Angleton Simmons tag on him, but he might be, you know, that kind of defensive asset. So, you know, those guys fit in, and obviously those guys are going to be cheap for a long time, which the Rays love. So, does that mean that Brandon Lau gets moved as he starts to creep toward arbitration eligibility? 
you know, I, maybe we won't see that until this coming off season. But you know, there are going to be uh, long term problems for the Rays, good problems in figuring out how all these pieces fit together. And uh, Taylor Walls also fits something else that the Rays seem to like. He's uh, been traditionally in the minor leagues and even now in the majors, a pretty good on-base guy. He's around 340 for his on-base percentage in his first 100 or so uh, plate appearances in the big leagues. 340 plays as a as an on-base percentage. Yeah, 340 with you know, gold glove defense. There are 29 other teams that would love to have that. And, you know, I don't care if he doesn't hit for power. There's a there's a role for that in this in in this game. And the uh, you know the Rays aren't just going to give that away or just you know bury that between Franco and Bruhan and Wendell and Lau. They're going to find they're going to find a way to use that asset. And he takes a lot of pitches because he draws a lot of walks. His batting average actually is only two twenty two, which a lot of people will look at and go, "Oh, you know, I got to replace that." But I don't think the Rays are like that. I think they're a little smarter about what contributions guys are making. And sitting there and looking at nine or ten pitches per plate appearance is a skill that is really valuable in most situations, as most teams are coming to realize. Yeah, you're right. We clearly don't need to tell the Rays that. They've known that for a while, right? Yeah, exactly. So uh, moving on, Ray, we'll call this news, but really not all that new. Uh, In Minnesota, the Twins put outfielder Byron Buxton on the 10-day IL, where I think he has a chair with his name on a plaque. Uh, in the IL room. Uh, he's got a broken hand this time. His left hand got broken. The Twins recalled uh, Gilberto Celestino from AAA. Rick Green covered the story for playing time today at BaseballHQ.com. Uh, what's the fallout here for a Twins team that by now has to be somewhat used to filling in for Byron Buxton? Yeah, just terrible timing for Buxton and the Twins. Buxton obviously had just come back from his last uh, stint in the IL chair, and the, and the Twins were starting to play well, too. They had won five or six in a row when they got Buxton back, and then they only had it back for a couple of days. Uh, it's a, I think the term I saw used was a boxer's fracture of the, uh, of the hand, and uh, last I saw, there was no determination made about whether or not he was going to need surgery for that, which obviously will affect the return timeline. So um, stay tuned. But you know, I think multiple weeks is the best case scenario. And if there's surgery involved, it could get, get into the month plus or multiple months scenario. So in the meantime, yeah, Gilberto Celestino and you know a cast of thousands may rotate through the outfield. We've seen some Max Kepler in center field. Uh, we, we've, you know, it's probably a save uh, for playing time for Trevor Larnack, who hasn't actually been bad, but was in danger of getting squeezed out of that outfield for the short term. But, you know, get, especially if the Twins don't mount a run back into contention, you got to believe that they're going to go with the youth movement to give Larnack and Alex Kirilov a lot of at bats over the uh, the rest of the summer as they turn the page to 2022. I looked up the injury actually because I'd never heard of it on an orthopedics site and it says it's a fracture of the pinky finger usually caused by punching something, hence the name. But I think in this case it was something punching the pinky finger, which was a hit by pitch. I think it was hit while holding the bat. Yeah, and I think it was even, it's even I think the the, the pinky finger, you're right, but the the, the bottom of the hand, if you make a fist, like almost more toward the connection between the pinky and the the base of the hand, which uh, you can imagine how that's going to be a... Um, a problem for you know holding the bat, um, and it's the left hand for Buxton is a right-handed hitter, so it's the uh, you can see why he got hit there. It's the bottom hand right at the knob of the bat, uh, but you know you can imagine that being able to hold a bat is going to be a problem for a good little while there. It is indeed uh, the metacarpal nearest the hand, uh, and 
the website says it's typically going to be three to six weeks in a cast or similar sort of constraint. And after the cast is taken off, there's some rehab that you have to do. And sometimes if it's bad enough, there's surgery and pins, and then the timeline extends out uh, very quickly. The Rick Green write-up at BaseballHQ.com mentioned a couple of guys, Nick Gordon and Rob Refsnyder. Yeah, Ref Snatter's on the DL with a hamstring strain, but he's he'll be back soon. And he he's filled, been one of the guys who filled in for Buxton. We've had plenty of experience trying to figure out cover, covering Byron Buxton's playing time for uh, you know already this year. So Ref Snatter fits into fits into that. And you know, Gordon is really the uh, you know he's been he's been on the AAA shuttle all year. I can't count the number of times he's been up and down. He's only got forty one at bats on the season, but uh, you know he's played a little second, a little short, and again you know. Uh, a little, a, a fair amount of center field in, uh, you know, just 15 games in the, in the, in the majors this year, but half of them have been in center. So, you know, those guys are going to be part of a patchwork answer. Uh, we'll see if Celestino sticks around when Rep Snyder gets, uh, gets activated and we'll, and then we'll, uh, hopefully have a little more clear idea on Buxton's timeline then. But, you know, in terms of fantasy production, Celestino, Gordon, Rep Snyder, all really placeholders here. There's no, you know, Gordon's got a little bit of speed. He's stolen five bases this year in part-time work. So if you're desperate for stolen bases and Gordon gets some at-bats, he's probably the most ringing recommendation I can give. But that's uh, that's a lighthearted one at best, too. Rick Green also mentioned another option. The Twins could uh, shift Max Kepler from right field to center. He's got pretty good wheels, uh, and they could move Luis Arise wherever he's needed in his utility role. So maybe that's a possibility. wouldn't change eligibility, of course. Yes, uh, Kepler's got, already got uh, ten games in center field this year, which is which is a lot for him. Uh, I don't think that's their first choice, but uh, it's a way, as I was saying earlier, to get both Larnock and Kirilov in the lineup because those guys are not can't even ma- really masquerade as center fielders. So you know that's one path to go there. But they're uh, li- like you said, it's probably going to be uh, a, li- a little bit of a lot of different people. I was watching a Twins game the other night, and Max Kepler stole a base, and they said it was his seventh stolen base of the season. It's his highest ever seasonal stolen base total. So something's going on with the speed for Max Kepler, which uh, in this day and age, gosh, if he happens to get another seven between now and the end of the season, all of a sudden he looks like a pretty valuable guy. Yeah, boy, the you know, the the power, he, he's missed time, but the power seems to be there with six home runs and 150 at-bats. But if you told me, more home runs and stolen bases for Max Kepler, more stolen bases than home runs, I would be flabbergasted, right? But as of right now, that's where he is. Yeah, if you prorate that over 600 at-bats, you're looking at you know mid-30s home runs or low-40s stolen bases for a season, which all of a sudden makes him look extraordinarily attractive despite the 211 batting average. And that's kind of a little bit false because his expected batting average is around 250, so he's got 40 extra points in that regard. Uh, I think Max Kepler might be a sneaky buy-lower, buy-middling right around now before people start realizing, hey, this guy's putting up some numbers because they look at six home runs and they think, yeah, you know, not bad. But, of course, he missed that time. Right. The missed time, the, you know, the power metrics actually look pretty much where they always do for him. So that's, uh, you know, like you said, it's a full season 30-plus 30, 30 home run pace. And the, the stolen bases may not continue at the same pace. But, boy, in this day and age of, you know, being starved for stolen bases, even 15 stolen bases or even – you know, another 10 over the balance of the season is right. just a, uh, a complete windfall. 
Well, speaking of stolen bases, and again, we'll call this news, but it isn't really all that new. The Kansas City Royals put shortstop Adalberto Mondesi on the IL. He's got a strained oblique this time. They recalled infielder Ryan O'Hearn. He's more of a corner infield guy uh, from AAA. What's going to happen in Kansas City with Mondesi out? Yeah, but just another <clears throat> just another very tough break. And in Mondesi's case, he's now strained the opposite oblique from the one that cost him the first six weeks or so of the season. So. He keeps finding uh, it's not exactly new and inventive ways to miss time, but uh, I guess the good news here is he's run out of obliques, right? So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's going to somehow get that middle one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, so you know, again, you know, much like the Buxton case, we've seen this movie before. We know what this means in terms of how they're going to fill in. And Ryan O'Hearn got the call, and I think he's actually hit a couple of home runs this week, so maybe he'll get a little, little bit of playing time out of this. But it means more Nicky Lopez in the middle infield, which from a fantasy perspective is not good news at all. Uh, although again, you know, he's another one who's got seven stolen bases and no caught stealings this year. So even though he's absolutely bereft of power, there's a, you know, there's a sneaky stolen base uh, source there. If you're really scrapping for scrapping for bags, but uh, it comes at a, uh, you know, that usually comes at a, uh, batting average penalty, although he's been uh, pretty average in that department this year. He's actually kept his batting average up to 257 in almost 200 bats with an expected batting average of 259, so right on point there. Uh, so if you want empty batting average and a spattering of stolen bases, help yourself to some Nicky Lopez. You could do worse. Uh, of course, how soon do you think it's going to be before the media in Kansas City and elsewhere start banging the drum for Bobby Witt? Well, I, I, I'm pretty sure it's already started. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't searched the internet this morning, but yeah, you certainly, th- you know, if you think back to March and all the excitement about possibly making the team right out of camp and that, but then, no, uh, you know, cooler heads prevailed and he, need, he needs some seasoning. He had uh, barely even played in double A, I think was the, at the time, but now we're, uh, you know, now we're into deeper into the season and he's getting some of that experience and, you know, he's hitting pretty well. He's, well, <clears throat> He's got, uh, well, he's actually not off to a great start in the minors here. So, yeah, maybe he needs a little bit more time. I don't have the numbers right in front of me, but uh, I'm sure the fan base is going to be screaming for that because I'm not going out to the park to see Nicky Lopez, but I might go out to see Bobby Witt. I, I did look him up in double A so far this year. He's got uh, 180-some plate appearances, 11 homers, 25 RBIs, 28 runs scored, 11 stolen bases. Six caught stealings, though, so it's not a sterling sort of record, but it's probably better than what they can expect to get from Nicky Lopez. Uh, I was I was scrolling too fast and missed the numbers, but now I see them. You're right, and you know the just dive on there. The red flag there is the 48 strikeouts and 164 at bats. So he's striking out a good quarter of the time, which uh, <clears throat> is probably justification to keep him down longer if they want to. But again. I guarantee you, he would come up and you know probably and wield a better bat than Nicky Lopez. So if that if that's the standard and you know the one the Franco call up probably means we're in Super Two arbitration season where you know pretty soon you can make that call up and not have to worry about having to pay with real money in the uh, you know three years from now. So yeah, it's time for the conversation at least, right? 
and he's still hitting 280 despite all the strikeouts and his on-base percentage is up in the mid 350s because he draws a lot of walks. He's at 10% walk rate so yep. far this year in in Double A. Of course, we have to temper our expectations because the jump from Double A AA to Triple A is going to cost, and then we know increasingly that gap between AAA and the major league seems to be getting wider every time we look at it. So uh, if Bobby Witt should happen to get the call, I think we need to really temper our expectations, perhaps even more than we have with uh, Franco, as we talked about earlier. Yeah, he's not as prepared or polished, uh, especially in terms of plate discipline as Franco, and that's often a leading indicator for initial success in the majors. Uh, so yeah, I would I would certainly agree. I If I'm in some hypothetical world where I'm deciding whether to break my fab bank for a Franco or a win, I'm doing it for Franco seven days a week. This next item is a little bit surprising as news goes, given the pedigree of Jesus Lazardo, but based on performance, you can see why the Athletics optioned him to AAA. They recalled right-hander Domingo Acevedo, uh, and Rod Truesdell covers the story for playing time today. Mighty have fallen in Oakland with Jesus Lazardo going down. Yeah, just a... You know, rock, a rock bottom situation here where, you know, he was injured to start the season. They brought him back and obviously they're trying to manage his innings and tried putting him in the bullpen. And that really just had disastrous results. I think it was uh, in his last, uh, each of his last, each of his last five relief outings covering only like eight innings. He had given up all, at least one home run in every relief outing. And, you know, having a reliever who can reliably give up home runs isn't really a skill that any team needs at this point. Uh, but I, I read this demotion as both Luzardo needed to get straight in, straightened out and the, the A's sort of acknowledging in my mind that uh, they're not handling him well here. Uh, you know, he was, you know, when he came back from in, injury, he missed almost the entire month of May and they put him in the bullpen and clearly that wasn't working. So it seems to me that rather than try to have him work things out in the majors and maybe make him a starter, but use him as an opener. They decided to just, you know, let's do a full level reset here. Let's, let's get him down to triple A. Let's let him get back into the starting routine. And, you know, I would expect after, you know, he gets restretched out over four or five starts and, you know, demonstrates that he's not giving up a home run every, uh, every inning and a half that uh, we'll see him back in the Oakland rotation, hopefully in, uh, in better condition. Uh, better uh, get, getting better results soon. There doesn't appear to be anything wrong from a velocity or swing strike perspective. Those metrics seem intact, even though he was just getting tattooed. Uh, so I would imagine that uh, this is going to be just sort of a sort of a respring training, restretch him out, get him back up to 85, 90 pitches, and assuming the results are following, that's when you'll see him back. And Rod Truesdell reports that with Lozardo out of the picture, should be a steadier, more stable playing time in the rotation for Cole Irvin and for James Caprielian. And and uh, of the two, it's Caprielian who seems to be attracting the most interest. Maybe not justifiably so. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I was actually at Caprielian's first game in Boston, and he's uh, you know he was quite good, and uh, he he's held it up since then. But yeah, you know, he's got a two eighty six ERA, which is you know really impressive. But there's a uh, there's a 4.52 expected ERA working behind that. Irvin, on the other hand, is you know got a uh, 3.98 ERA, which seems uh, you know obviously from a surface stats perspective is less helpful, but that's more in line with his skills. His his expected ERA is 4.80, so it's still a run higher, but not the same gap that uh, Caprellian's sporting. So really, they're you know from a skills perspective, they're not dissimilar. 
Uh, it's just that Caprellian's getting better results right now, which means that, you know, the corollary to that is Caprellian's probably due for harder regression. Yeah, what have you done for me lately, right? Uh, I I think you can make a play on either Irvin or Caprellian and maybe as streamers, looking at the matchups. We'll talk a little bit more later about platoon advantage and disadvantage, not that it affects him particularly, but there's ways that a guy like this can be useful. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, the, the AL West is a pretty good place to stream these days with, uh, you know, some not great offenses in Seattle and Texas to begin with. And, you know, the Angels have their problems. They've got some, uh, you know, they generate some power with uh, Otani and Upton and Taylor Ward and Jared Walsh and those guys, but especially with Trout out that the, uh, you know, if you, if you could have, if, if you are targeting A starters and you stay away from their games against the Astros, the West, the rest of the, uh, intra-Western games are generally pretty good uh, streaming opportunities, especially for the A's pitchers that have that friendly home ballpark. And every so often they get to go and get the Detroits and the Kansas cities and stuff like that as well. So more opportunities there as well. Uh, Speaking of uh, Acevedo's, the guy that got called up, he's an 8C prospect in the daily call-ups, Ray. Uh, An 8 is a ceiling of a solid regular. You mentioned earlier about Franco. C means a 50-50 chance of achieving that ceiling. So we're not looking at Jack Leiter here, but he could be a serviceable guy, especially maybe in the bullpen. Yeah, it, interesting here. The bullpen for the A's has you know, been sort of a, you know, not quite a revolving door, but it's been a, uh, you know, a committee or a taking a village approach with uh, Trevino and Dykeman at the not, at the um, at the back end, and a bunch of guys falling in in various roles in front of them. And Acevedo looks like he could fit right into that. Uh, you know, he's a really big guy. He's six seven, two forty. You know, older for a prospect at twenty seven, but you know, he got here. On the basis of performance and looking, at, you know, you, you have any questions about why they called him up? And all you have to look at is look at his AAA numbers and see, uh, <clears throat> faced sixty four batters in AAA, struck out twenty seven and walked three. Yeah, that's that'll probably work. So <laughs> he, he can't, he, you know, as a big guy, I, I mentioned uh, his size earlier, but you can imagine at six seven two forty, he was groomed as a starter for a very long time, uh, and that, um, but but there were a number of injuries and. Uh, you know, he never really, you know, got traction in that role. So now they've, uh, you know, done the classic, like, okay, we're going to put you in the bullpen for short bursts. Just go air it out. Don't worry about your third and fourth pitch. Just, uh, just go shred people. And he's doing it with a, uh, you know, high nineties fastball and a curveball, and you know, still sporting a decent changeup too that he can use. So, yeah, he could slide right into the you know setup tier of this bullpen and maybe even rise higher there because. Uh, Deakman and Trevino have not been, uh, not exactly been uh, Dennis Eckersley in the ninth inning. So there's uh, the, the, there's potential opportunity there as the season goes on. We'll see how we'll see how he acquits himself. It's definitely something to watch. A fastball curveball combination works in the bullpen, where you really do t- for long term success as a starter. I think we all accept that, except in rare uh, circumstances, you do need that third pitch to to offset the the big two that you have. Uh, let's talk about something other than transactions for a while. Ray, the news in baseball has all been uh, the sticky stuff. And every night we see the security theater spectacle. We see the umpires, they're frisking the pitchers like they're corner boys in the wire. I know you and your co-general manager, Brent Hershey, are planning a column about this at Baseball HQ. But in the meantime, we have already had a couple of interesting discussions in the Baseball HQ columns. Let's start with the big hurt. Jim Ferretti and Matt Cederholm were discussing the clampdown because it affected Tyler Glasnow. 
Yeah. So Jim and Matt, our injury analyst, you know, came to us and said, you know, they thought they had some things to say on this topic. And we, of course, said, fantastic, let's go. Um, and, you know, they, it was interesting because, you know, I defer to these guys' opinions quite a bit. Uh, you know, they're, they're the experts in this space for a reason. And I will admit that when Glass now was uh, compl- complaining last week uh, about his injury and that he thought it was related to the lack of sticky stuff uh, and the, the effect it had on his delivery, I was a little skeptical. Uh, it sounded to me like, you know, heat of the moment of frustration and certainly yeah. Glass now is devastated that he's injured, he, th- th- that he's injured and has to go through this. And while I'm sympathetic to that, I just didn't know that the theory held, held that much water to me. Uh, but, you know, Jim and Matt basically said, yep. Yeah. entirely possible um and they explained why you know in crystal de- crystal clear detail that made so much sense to me uh you know this is why i defer to these guys they basically said that if you don't have the sticky stuff on the ball you're likely to grip the ball harder and get it deeper into your hand or you know tighter into your fingers and you know these uh you know pitcher deliveries much like your you know your delicate sports car analogy you know you do something <laughs> like that that uh you know, cha- you change your grip or your the strength of your grip, and now suddenly your you know your entire delivery is a little wonky off, and you know maybe some parts of your body or your arm that you know weren't necessarily being strained as much in your normal comfortable delivery are being you know b- being impacted as ripple effects of this. And some guys who have good clean repeatable deliveries will be able to adjust and. Some guys won't. We don't necessarily know who is who, but it's entirely possible that we're going to see some cases like the, like what, what Glass now is saying here that it all you know sort of biomechanically makes sense and uh, you know the you know the, the advanced version of the knee bones connected to the elbow bone connected to the, you know these things all you know <clears throat> there's a lot of interplay here and you know it's not at all impossible for you know the cascading effects of trying to hang to the ball harder to you know, tie more tightly to put it in exactly the square of the strike zone you want is going to have ripple effects up and down the body, not just the elbow. Well, Ray, I I used to play tennis pretty competitively. And uh, over the years, um, I I ended up developing elbow trouble, as lots of tennis players do. And I had to have arthroscopic surgery. And as part of the rehab, the, the rehab facilitator was telling me about the relationship between your grip and your elbow problems. And she said, and you can try this if you're listening at home or, or if you just have some time, some time when you have nothing better to do, but grab your forearm just below the elbow and give it a bit of a squeeze so you can feel the muscles and tendons in there and then close your fist and grip it really hard. And you'll feel all of that musculature and all of those uh, connective tissues start to tighten up. And what it turns out, she thought my problem was, was that the grip of my tennis rackets was too small and I was forced to, to clench down. And, and she said, just wrap the, wrap the handle with a few layers of that grip tape get a little thicker, yeah. and make it a little thicker so you don't have to press so hard with your hand. And sure enough, it really changed uh, that entire structure for me. So when I read this Tyler Glasnow complaint, I thought, I bet he's right. I bet he's, he, without the grippy stuff, he's had to pinch down harder with his hand and exactly what you said it creates this massive cascade that runs up your elbow it's a very finely tuned machine as you said and really you know to to get into the uh the macro mlb uh handling of this shame on them right (laughs) i mean to, to, to go ahead and you know knowing this was going on and sure 
by 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 the rule book, this shouldn't have been happening. And I think we've heard enough pitchers say that even that this has gone too far, and they've gone from using sunscreen to using customized, you know, super sticky, you know, gorilla glue type stuff that, yeah. you know, <laughs> you can barely get the ball. If you don't throw the ball hard enough, it won't even come out of your hand, right? We were, we were, we were one step away from, like, the Bugs Bunny. Like, you you wind up and the pitch never comes out. And it's still, the guy's, like, shaking it off his finger on the mound trying to get it trying to get it out of his hand, right? Yeah. But, all, but all that said, to, like, you know, just to go cold turkey on, like, a week's notice with no... You know, everybody seems to have acknowledged in this discussion that the the right solution is to come up with some approved substance that all the ball we could just rub you know much like rubbing the balls with mud. Why don't we just rub all the balls down before the game with the, you know this particular kind of sticky, not gorilla glue type stuff, and we'll just use that going forward. And the pitchers get a little bit of grip out of it, and the batters get a little bit of confidence that the ball's not going to end up in their face, and everyone's happy. But but no, we couldn't do that. We have instead we have to have security theater, and uh, you know Ma- Ma- Max Scherzer doesn't need support from me. But boy, did I really enjoy Max Scherzer this week. Let me tell you, I saw a clip of somebody. I think it was in Oakland who like dr- actually dropped his pants to his knees, clearly in frustration. <laughs> I was waiting for that. It was still with the Steve Lyons move, right? Yeah, except this guy was mad. The Lions was just yeah, farting around, right. I think. But yeah, and uh, you know, I retweeted uh, Zach Britton this week, who you know I thought summed it up nicely. Is like, how ridiculous is it that we're talking about this all week instead of Wander Franco? <laughs> you know, this should be Wander Franco's week, and we should be excited about you know this Uber prospect coming up, and you know enjoy the fact they're going to watch we're going to watch this guy you know hopefully dominate the game for the next 15 plus years and instead we're watching guys drop their pants on the field because they're being treated like criminal and you know i think there's a kinetic effect like you talked about earlier when we were discussing glasnow but the effect that i'm now thinking of is major league baseball knows it has a problem with the way the game is played the pace of play there's so few hits and so many strikeouts and i think somebody somewhere might have said you know what I think it's something to do with the spin rate. We got to do something about the spin rate, so the spin rate becomes the issue rather than the pace of play, in the larger sense. And somebody in Major League Baseball's front office says, "We have to make a show of doing something about this. So let's make a show about doing it now because it'll deflect attention from all the things we're not doing about it, like getting the strike zone right, like all of these other uh, aspects of play that are much more difficult to fix. And much like making us all take our shoes off when we go to the airport." The goal isn't security; it's the appearance of security. Right, and let's not, let's not forget what a big part of the issue here here is too is that there was so much chatter, you know, not just from those of us who were you know deeply embedded in the game, but even among casual fans back in like May of how baseball was broken because of the lack of offense. And it wasn't because you know the, the real issue there isn't that spin rates suddenly went off the charts this year. Sure, they've been going up year over year forever. Uh, you know, as, as the sticky stuff had gotten more prevalent. And again, I'm not, I'm, you know, the pitchers have stipulated that this was a little bit out of control and, you know, they put, they, they'd taken, been given an inch and taken a mile and sure that needed to get a rain back in. But let's not forget that the, the sticky stuff was not new in April and May when everyone was screaming about the lack of offense, but what was new was that MLB introduced a new ball. And now everyone's talking about sticky stuff as the problem for the lack of offense, as opposed to the fact that they put a dead ball into the game which, you know, MLB has nobody to blame for but themselves. And if MLB didn't actually realize that the product we got in April and May with more strikeouts and no home run and home runs dying on the warning track instead of going over the wall, if they didn't realize that that was going to lead to a, you know, a, a product with no balls in play and no action and 
no run scoring. Well, how dumb are they? I mean, so to, to me, this is the, you know, this is, yes, it's the appearance of security, but it's also a massive deflection away from the, hey, we got a little bit too aggressive with this new ball thing. So let, let's blame the players for, you know, something they've been doing for a long time. And I watch a lot of baseball, as you do, on the uh, on the uh, extra innings package that we have. And, and I'm not kidding when I say I bet I've heard four or five different former major leaguers who are in broadcast booths talking about how shiny and slippery the leather is of the ball. And they bring that back to a lot of them brought up what you did, the Delaware mud where the umpires used to sit yeah. in, the ga- in the umpire's room before the game and rub up six boxes of balls with that mud partly to take the shine off but also partly to create a little bit of texture so that the pitchers can can grab a hold of a, the ball and, and get some mustard on it without having to resort to these substances and now the ball is much slipperier and much shinier and they're not rubbing it up in any way I guess somebody told me that, that they're uh, leaving it to the ball boys to just scuff them up with their hands on the way in while they're you know, just before they give them to the ump, something like that. I mean, that they're making fundamental changes in this area, and, and then they act surprised when these fundamental changes go awry because they weren't thought all the way through. And what, on top of that, and all, everything you say is true, on top of that, throw in the increased use of humidors, too. I think we're up to nine or ten parks that, you know, are storing the balls in climate-controlled conditions. You know, in some cases, I believe, right from when they get delivered to the ballpark, not just, like, on game day. So, if I'm, you know, I know you and I both listened to the Theo Epstein interview um, a month or two ago where he was talking about a bunch of the stuff, you know, a bunch of the stuff that they could look at, a bunch of the levers they could pull to try to sort of inject more action back into the game and, you know, curtail the strikeout rate a little bit. But if you're Epstein or anybody who's trying to take a scientific approach to this and sort of tease out what the you know, key factors in play are and what the ones that are just the noise with all these variables changing. I, I how do you do anything other than throw up your hands and say, hell if I know. Exactly right. Yep. The big hurt we should point out uh, is a terrific column. It looks at other pitchers besides Glasnow who have the potential to be affected about using spin rates as a filter when you're doing your fantasy baseball research and in general, how fantasy managers should deal with this issue. So that's the big hurt at Baseball HQ right now. Terrific column. Tanner Smith, who writes the Arsenal Report column, also discussed the goo situation. Uh, His focus was on a couple of big names, Trevor Bauer and Garrett Cole, who have been implicated in a lot of this uh, discussion over the past few years yeah this was really interesting too uh you know so if the big hurt guys went through sort of the kinetic chain and the you know the the injury factors and all that sort of thing tanner kind of went to the next level and talked about that really conveyed to me that this isn't just about spin rates spin rates are sort of the you know the metric to tease out what's happening here but in terms of pitcher effectiveness, there's more to it than that. You know, he made a couple of good points when he was talking about Bauer. He said, you know, Bauer has very clearly lost a couple hundred RPMs off of his uh, pitches in the last couple of weeks. And Bauer, of course, had been a, you know, a vocal, you know, a, <laughs> all but an admitted user of the stuff, but also a vocal critic of it and said, you know, yeah, I'm doing it. But, you know, no, we shouldn't be doing it. We should have a level playing field. You know, nobody talks out of, out of both sides of their mouth like Trevor Bauer, right? But... Um, <laughs> But the, uh, you know, the, the point that Tanner made there was, you know, a couple of things caught my eye. One is, was that even Bauer's reduced spin rates are still like top 5% in the game, or maybe it was even top five in the game, but they're still elite, even though they're diminished. So if everybody gets diminished, you know, Bauer probably is not losing standing relative to the field here. He's still generating elite spin on the ball. 
the other thing that he walked through that was is really sort of the next level of analysis here that I'm going to be watching in the next couple of weeks is how Bauer in particular has started to change his pitch mix again because he's not just going to do the same thing and attack hitters the same way with diminished stuff, right? He's going to start using different pitches in different counts, spotting them in different places, altering his pitch mix. And there was even evidence when Tanner wrote this article last week just on a start or two that Bauer was starting to do that. So taking that analysis of Bauer, that's, you know, and, and moving it to the to the masses, that's really what I'm going to be trying to watch over the next couple of weeks to the extent that I can is what pitchers are adjusted to this effectively and which ones aren't. And how to how we tease that out is kind of the conversation that uh, Brent and I are having in the article that we're, uh, we will have up on the site this Friday. Well, I'll really look forward to that, Ray. It's an interesting topic. I think it's very important for baseball and for fantasy baseball. That'll be a fun read coming out today. Uh, Ray, thanks very much for helping us out. A great session as usual. Lots of fun uh, talking about fantasy baseball with you, and we'll do it all again next week. I'll be here, PD. Ray Murphy is co-general manager and columnist at BaseballHQ.com and has our American League news here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. Next up, it's part two of our feature expert interview with Dave Potts from Roto-Grinder. He'll be coming up to the plate for his second at-bat next on Baseball HQ Radio. First off, Stengel was, to me, one of the more misunderstood figures in baseball because of his time with the Mets and because he understood what his role was and his role was to entertain the media. And, and I think uh, his baseball knowledge and his, his general acumen was really lost in a lot of that caricature, okay? He became a caricature uh, of himself. And uh, for the players, though, it was interesting, you know? He'd get you in spring training every year, and he'd had the same routine. I mean, with the Mets, I mean, he really started with the basics. I mean, you know, he went over to the bag, and he reached in there, and he pulled out a ball, and he said, this is a baseball. That's where we started. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for part two of our feature expert interview with Dave Potts from Roto Grinder. Dave, welcome back. Welcome back to you. We talked a little bit earlier, Dave, about your regular column at Roto Grinders, which I find very interesting. I don't play DFS, but I read it anyway because I think the thought processes apply to a certain extent, into the season long and, and thinking about players and, and how they contribute is really valuable. But I have to start by asking why you call yourself cheese is good, all one word. <laughs> yeah, so way back in the day when I made my first FanDuel account, and this happened to a lot of people, like nobody thought to themselves, this is going to be my name 20 years from now and people are going to know me. It's like there's a lot of people with names that you like, if we knew that this was the name, it would be something different. But so way back when I made this FanDuel account, and it started on FanDuel and I made it on other sites, um, it has nothing to do with a food group. I actually don't eat cheese other than on pizza. Um, you know, I'm a musician and um, I write uh, what I will call old people music. You know, it's, I'm like a folk singer songwriter. And I had a CD reviewed in a college newspaper. And the college kid reviewing my music said something to the extent of some of these songs are kind of cheesy, but sometimes cheese is good. Oh. And that and that was like I read that review like the day before I made this FanDuel account. So I was like, I don't know, what's a random name? Cheese <laughs> is good. And and now like 
you know, people just call me Cheese, and that's just my name. And um, <laughs> be careful how you handle that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Could have been worse, I guess. <laughs> oh yeah, I mean, yeah, uh, I've I've come to I've come to like it. Yeah, um, but yeah, definitely. Um, I don't think anyone who's now sort of in the industry uh, thought about it at the time of whatever name I pick, boy, that's going to be my name. It's going to be, yeah, you're going to live with it's like being the name you're given at birth. It's uh, possible to change it. But I noticed that on a lot of websites, you go to say, can I change my username? And there's just no pathway to doing it. They just refuse. Yeah. And, yeah. You're and, not allowed to, and you right. have to get very specific, um, you know, allowance to do it. And they'll let you maybe do it once if you have a reason. Right. Uh, yeah. You can't just willy nilly change it around. I've had a few accounts where I've tried to change my username and they say you can't. So I say, okay, fine. And then I go just re-register for a new account because it's not like I have any history with them that I care about. And then they say, well, that, that, uh, that email account has been assigned to a previous name, which is me. But <laughs> so then I have to have, now I have to start a second email account so I can get a different name on the screen. And frankly, it's usually not worth the bother. So before we get into the column details of cheese is good, uh, and your, uh, million dollar musings you call them uh, i'm curious about how deeply you go into pitcher analysis do you use the statcast stats this and uh, th those kinds of things yes so uh, basically in any any one given day like it's a pretty huge undertaking to write this article so like i'm not digging into every possible stat for every single pitcher on every single day so i don't have that kind of time but what i try to do is pick out certain spots when, especially like if you see, uh, you know, a change, like this guy all of a sudden is really good or really bad. I will dig in and see what's, what's happening. Is it something with velocity? Is it something maybe with the spin right now? Is it something with batted balls? Um, and I'll basically try to do occasional deep dives into certain pitchers where we look at, um, you know, uh, he's throwing a splitter to lefties now and this is happening, but, um, you know, as far as overall in a day, um, I don't look at like every possible underlying stat with every pitcher as much as an overall look at let's let's figure out where the, the tiers and the ranking points are, the, the separation on the slate. How quickly do the platforms adapt to what's going on in the real game? So just to give you an example, uh, early in the season, I expect Carlos Rodon was probably not very highly salaried in most of the formats on most of the platforms, but then he throws a no-hitter, and all of a sudden he's getting some buzz, and then he start, and he keeps it rolling, and he's having yet almost had a second no-hitter. Do you see the price ratcheting up fairly quickly in response to those kind of events on the real field, or are they, do they lag events on the real field? Yeah, what's strange is it's pretty random, and like there are cer certain pitchers where they can be just fantastic forever and never really get the bump. And some guys never come down, but then like Radon specifically. Yeah. After like one big start, he jumped from like $8,000 to $11,000, which is, you know, ACE level. Um, so sometimes they catch up really quick. Um, but then certain sites, like if you look at the difference between FanDuel and DraftKings, they just each have their players that for whatever reason, they just don't like, like, it doesn't matter what Joe Musgrove does. He's going to be cheap on FanDuel. And it doesn't matter what Shohei Otani does. He's cheap on DraftKings. Whereas another guy, you know, Robbie Ray, they adjusted up. He's priced like an ace now. But some guys, they don't. It's I haven't, uh, I don't see a real rhyme or reason to it. Um, 
which is part of why we have to do this every day and see, you know, who are they, who have they missed on? Yeah, it seems like an arbitrage possibility, right? That the the market has just lagged for whatever reason the, on setting a proper price. If uh, I invest, and and some, and we're always looking when you're investing, you're always looking for an underappreciated company or an overappreciated company, so that you can get out ahead of that trend even for a week or two, and it can really make a difference. But if they if it's random. That makes it a lot harder. You have to actually look at each one separately and yeah. think, "Oh, oh, this is a guy they missed. I better get in until they fix it." And then you find out maybe they don't fix it anyway. I noticed in the article, Dave, on Wednesday of this week, that you called Herman Marquez of Colorado because he was pitching against a weak Seattle team, the most correct play points per dollar. But you went on to say you really disliked the idea of a chalky Marquez and that you're going to go to your way to get two other pitchers in most of your lineups. Why would you not want to get? pitcher that you thought was pretty chalky as a choice or was it because he was pretty chalky as a choice yeah so it's specifically because everybody knows what they're doing now i'll I'll keep going back to this like everyone who play virtually everyone is going to see and know the that's why air quoted most correct play um so if all you do is play the most correct plays you're never, ever going to win a tournament. And the way that DFS um, sites have done the payout structures now, it's so top-heavy that I really only care about can this team win first place. Um, in a tournament with 20,000 people, finishing 50th sounds great. It's, it's barely relevant. Like, it, it hardly matters. You, the only way you profit long-term tournament-wise is to have a couple top like top one overall top five overall out of 20,000 like I am not interested in just making a bunch of really good lineups and have all of them minimum cash now that's that's strictly talking tournaments um if you're talking cash games which would be like head-to-heads or 50-50s then and that I do talk about this in the article then you definitely for sure you play Herman Marquez without even thinking about it on that slate. Um, but when you get to tournaments, it depends on what else is on the slate, whether or not you play a chalky guy. And I'm not even really trying to predict whether that guy is good or not that day. Like I love, like I like Herman Marquez a lot. He pitched great. Um, the point is I could get a lineup with Brandon Woodruff and Kevin Gaussman while everyone else was playing Herman Marquez, you know, Woodruff and Gaussman are better pitchers. And that's a way to be different with a higher potential score. I'm not saying, I'm not even trying to say what lineup do I think is going to score the most points because that's the same lineup everyone else has. That's what the cash game lineup is. And that has Herman Marquez. Um, so the way I decide am I playing this chalk guy is what am I getting? If I don't play him, do I like the, the other options at least just as much or more? Um, and on that particular slate, it wasn't that hard to pay up for some really good pitchers. It was Woodruff, Gauspin, Otani, maybe somebody else. Um, so I had, you know, I had about, we talked, you talked about this. Like I play a lot of lineups. Um, I had, plenty of Herman Marquez. Um, my, my best teams ended up having him because he did have the good start. Um, 
but I had less than the field. Um, like if he was 50% owned, and I had 40%. I wanted to be over the field on the Woodruff Gaussman Otanis. Um, chase the upside. And that was just that particular slate. Some days it's, some days it's different. Um, but the point is like, everybody knows who the best play is. And if I like something else other than that, um, then I'm going to get off of it. But if I don't like something else better than that, especially a pitcher, I'm more than happy to play the chalk pitcher e- even at 100% sometimes. It sounds like you have a degree of confidence that most of the players that you're up against, the the, the not the baseball players, but the uh, game players, are going to do the right thing insofar as picking their lineups. So, for instance, in the Herman Marquez example, you're fairly convinced that most of the uh, people building their rosters are going to include him, therefore you're not. But at the same time, the obvious question that pops into my mind is, if everybody's as good at playing it as you suspect they are, why aren't they all thinking, this guy's chalk, everybody's going to have him, I'm going to pivot and go somewhere else and thereby make Herman Marquez actually a good choice. Do you know what I mean? It's- yeah, well, we're, we're somewhere in the middle of that exact conundrum. Um, and where we end up is the chalky players are not as chalky as they were three years ago. So because of exactly what you said, everyone's aware of it. Like every any site you go to, any podcast you listen to, everyone's talking about ownership. So it, you're not sneaking anything by anyone on either side, um, which is why, like, I leave open the possibility of sometimes, like, I don't fade chalk or not fade chalk. It's totally dependent on that slate and who it is and what the other options are. You, you don't ever see a guy, you know, 80% owned. So you'll see a, a guy like 50% owned. Um, but when you look at the size of a tournament and say, so if I'm playing a tournament with 20,000 people, that's 10,000 people with Harman Marquez. I still don't really see that as what I want to do. Um, but you're absolutely right in your thinking that everyone's aware of this. And so the, the chalky plays every year that goes by, the ownership levels on the highest owned guys kind of come down um, because, because everyone is spreading out. Like this is this is not just like something that I've come up with. This is this is what everyone does. I, I would love to tell you this is this is just just me. <laughs> yeah, here, Patrick, that's right. Yeah. No, this is. I mean, this is very industry wide. Um, everyone's aware of the ownership, um, and that's why re- really what it comes down to is what are my other options, and do I like the other option as well? Um, and the way I like to describe it, um, it's easier writing it than saying it, but I think it'll make sense. If a guy is 50% owned and he costs $5,000 and he scores five points, if I can get a guy at 49% owned who costs $4,900, who scores 5.1 points, I'm ahead. Like that's it. You just, I'm not trying to say I like this guy or I don't like this guy. Like, course i like her mama because that's why he's the popular play the question is can i get a guy who's i like just ever so slightly more at just even a little bit less ownership or a little cheaper 
If so, that's a win. Like it's it's small edges. It's not some big picture. Oh, I just don't like her mom Marquez against the Mariners. Of course I do. Yeah, I thought that uh, the, the the answer that you're going to give was going to be about accumulating a whole bunch of incremental gains rather than look, I'm the only guy in the whole 20,000 guys who noticed that Shohei Otani's pitching tonight. Woohoo! That's going to be a big win for me because with that volume of play, they're all going to be relatively well covered. And, and so the, the it becomes a valuation proposition and a value versus cost versus benefit prediction and a prediction slash calculation because you're if you're basing it on a prediction, it's not really a calculation, but you have to work with something, right? You also took uh, Robbie Ray and mentioned him on Wednesday night against a fairly weak Miami offense as a chalk pitcher on the night slate. And I wanted to know, uh, did you have a lot of Robbie Ray in your 300-ish lineups? Yeah, so this is where it was different. And like yesterday, I, mean, I know by the time someone listens to this, it may have been a week ago, but right. it was a good example. It was two slates, day slate, night slate with how I treat the same exact situation differently because it's all, what are my other options? So with Marquez, the way the salaries work out, even though they were more expensive, I could just play Brandon Woodruff instead of him. So, of course, I'm going to do that. But with Robbie Ray, I just flat out thought he was far and away the best pitcher. And he wasn't even the most expensive. Like So that was the, the Bauer-Musgrove matchup. Well, they're both more expensive than Robbie Ray. And then we had Trevor Rogers was against Toronto, and he was more expensive than Robbie Ray. Just plain old, plain old skill set wise, I actually think Robbie Ray is the best DFS pitcher among that group. And then he was facing Miami, and then he was cheaper. That's one of those situations where I don't care how popular he is. If I'm certain that he's the best play, like I wasn't just certain that Marquez is the best play, I was certain that Ray was the best play. I had a hundred percent on DraftKings, which is pretty rare for me to have a hundred percent of anybody. Um, and on FanDuel, we only have one pitcher. I had something like 60%, which is a lot for me as well. Um, so if I, if I'm, if I'm just sold on, this is the play, um, at pitchers, it's different with hitters, but at pitcher, um, I'll, I'll play all of them. And I, I did, I had a straight up hundred percent on DraftKings. When I saw the recommendation about Ray, the one thing that popped into my mind was that the game was in Miami, and all year his problem has been giving up home runs. He's just stopped walking guys, which is excellent, and he's still striking out guys, and but he's giving up a lot of home runs. And in Miami, it's hard to give up home runs. There's, it's a big yard. And uh, I wondered whether that played into your thinking as well. Yeah, just every single thing lined up for it. Um, and that's And all the other good pitchers, you could find a reason why it wasn't really the right spot for them. Um, and that, that's really what I'm doing. Like I'm seeing well, how much separation is there in these guys when there's not a lot of separation, then I spread out and I play the ownership game when there is a lot of separation and I know the best play, that's who I'm playing. So that's, that's where I came to with, with Ray last night. And I guess even though the pitcher has an outsized representation in the salary system at these, uh, DFS platforms, even if you take 100% Robbie Ray for a particular night, you still have opportunities to go against the chalk in the hitting lineups. Which So there's always an opportunity. It's not like you're wedded to the same lineup 100 times with your hitters. Right. And, yeah. Uh, speaking of hitters, you said in your article you were going to stack Astros. So how many Astros stacks did you end up with? And I'm guessing they won 13 to nothing, I think, against the Orioles. How did you do? The Astros were great. Where I ended up was... Um, so 
it was a pretty chalky slate in general. Like we keep the word chalky. I realize this is kind of gets annoying, but we, we use it a lot in DFS terms, but um, the Astros last night were one of those situations where you, you pretty much have to play them in at least some lineups. If you're doing multiple lineups, because it was just such an obviously great spot. So kind of back to the point you just said about the pitcher at some point somewhere, you want your lineup to get different, but it doesn't have to be different everywhere. So if I had Ray and Astros, then whatever else I filtered in around them was going to be different. Um, and the other thing that I do is with a team like the Astros, if everybody's playing them and it's pretty obvious, hey, this is who you want, I'm going to play a whole bunch of different parts of their lineup. Like I'm not just playing Altuve, Alvarez, Correa, and moving on with my day. Like I've got Maldonado, I've got Toro, I've got Straw, I've got, I mean, I'm going to play all these nonsense guys as well um, and make different combinations of that team. Because when a team's going to score 13 runs, it's going to come from a little bit of everywhere. I was going to say that uh, it was a risk that didn't pop into my mind until I looked at the box score. They did score 13 runs, as you said, but it was really a share of the wealth kind of thing. I think Toro had four RBIs and everybody else was one or two kind of situation. And you're only allowed to stack is it three or four hitters it, from a particular you get, team? You can take four on FanDuel or five on DraftKings. Okay, so you could get five out of the uh, out of the Astros, and if you mixed and matched, you could probably get all of them. And one of those lineups is going to have all those RBIs, which is really good, and the home runs and stuff like that. How often does it happen that a team scores a bucket full of runs like this and the stack misses out on a guy like Abraham Toro because he's he's not that highly th- thought of, and especially in the glare of the of the Astros, a very potent offense. I think, yeah, one, one of my favorite things about TFS, I think one of the reasons I do well at it is that I'm totally okay realizing that the best player on the team some days is not going to be the one who does the damage. Even if he gets a couple walks, like I will all the time have, you know, a brave stack without Acuna or, you know, I, an angel stack without Trout. Like it doesn't, it doesn't come from always where you think it's going to come from. Um, and especially when it's just a plain old good team that's good all around. Like Abraham Toro's pretty good. Um, like a team like the Astros, everyone's decent. And then when you have the Orioles and the Orioles bullpen, you pretty much know everyone's just going to get a bunch of extra bats. Everyone's going to have runners on base to the point where even a couple of bloop singles are going to be worth worth something. And then there's, of course, the salary coming into it. Like, the reason I had Toro everywhere is not because I love Abraham Toro, some genius. It's just that he was really cheap and I was playing Robbie Ray and Jordan Alvarez. So that's who fits. Um, Like, sometimes it just works out. Call it dumb luck or, you know. some general somewhere yeah. said luck is the residue of design. And I think that's generally speaking is pretty true. I have a theoretical question about stacking hitters, Dave, how do you balance the upside? You get a really nice matchup with like you had with the Astros, but there's also a risk that having five Astros in your lineup, they could just run into the one night in his life that Eshelman is tremendous. You know, he throws mm-hmm. a one hitter and doesn't right. walk anybody. And uh, you've got, dozens or scores or hundreds of lineups with all these Astros in them and you're just dead in the water. Is that just price of doing business? Yeah. So this is where it's important to point out the difference between tournaments and cash games. Um, Like if you're playing like 50 fifties or head to heads, you do not want to stack. 
outside of some, maybe a course field game sometimes, uh, I would almost never stack in, in a cash game. But in tournaments, um, so this goes back to where I was saying it's just so top heavy with the payouts these days. It really only matters if you finish first or, you know, top five. So I don't care at all if I finish dead last. Uh, in fact, I mean, it's almost a goal to have some lineups last. Like you're, you're doing it wrong if you're not taking on the risk where, yeah, sometimes this nonsense pitcher is going to throw a no hitter and you're going to get a zero, but finishing 20,000th out of 20,000 is no different than finishing 5,000. Like it, it, it's really not, it's the exact same thing. You get the exact same $0. Um, and so you got to just play for that upside that comes from stacking and it's tough if you're only playing people that only play, you know, a couple of lineups and they go all in on Astros. It's really tough to stomach the night when they do, you know, the night before they had this three game set in Baltimore and they scored 10 runs and 13 runs. The other game, they scored like three runs on six hits. If you had them that night and you just played one lineup and it was an Astros stack that goes back to your, this is kind of depressing. Why am I doing this? <laughs> yeah. um, and you know, that's part of why I have a bunch of lineups. I'm not ever going to have all Astros stacks. Um, where I will go all in on a pitcher, um, I'm never going to go all in on an offense. It's so much more variable with bats. Um, so I'm totally fine with having a bunch of teams finish last. Uh, it's it's the same as finishing in the middle. I wonder about the fact that you find yourself in a position to be able to put 300 or, or more lineups out in a single night, which gives you a kind of a... Um, volume advantage over somebody who's signing into the same tournament as you but has only enough resources that he can put three lineups in he's at a really significant disadvantage to anybody to players like you who are probably better at it than he is anyway but also who have the ability to put in exponentially more lineups and you're not alone there's other people who are putting in hundreds of lineups as well how realistic is it for a, somebody like me who wants to go in and play one lineup to even think about getting into a game against you or, or do the platforms have any kind of contest where it's only one lineup to a customer kind of thing to yeah even so up the scales yeah so I'm, I'm glad you brought that up like there's a lot of season-long people who still really want to hate dfs for this exact reason and some who really do and like just think it's the devil it's very important to point out that there are tons of single entry contests where I have one and you have one. And that's all I have. Like there's no reason for anyone to enter one lineup in a contest where 10 other people have 150, like there's single entry tournaments. And that's what I would recommend. Most people play. Like if you're not a high volume player, don't, don't play the tournament that you see that big top prize. Ooh, listen, I, I can enter $10 and win 50,000. You're not going to stop. <laughs> <laughs> Put the $10 in a $10 single entry tournament where, again, I only have one entry. You only have one entry. You don't have to hit the nuts. You don't have to have the random, you know, Travis Jankowski two home run game. Um, your good lineup is can minimum cash with just kind of an okay day. You're not competing against all that. Um, it's really a matter of what you're playing in. And I think people just get it in their head that DFS is this one huge tournament for a hundred thousand dollars when really there are tons of single entry um, tournaments, cash games, 50 fifties, where 
that's what you're supposed to be playing if you're not like a serious full-time player. Just enter enter the one lineup in a one lineup league, which there are plenty of, um, and then it is even footing. How much would you win in a one lineup league if you put in a ten spot? Depends on the day, you know, a thousand. Righteous bucks. I was talking once with a, a fantasy baseball expert, also quite well known in DFS, and I'm not going to say who it was, but he told me at the time, and this may have changed, this was a few years ago at Tout Wars in New York, and we were in Foley's Bar, and I asked him what formats he played, and he said, nothing but cash games, all 50-50s. And I said, why is that? And he said, because I've calculated that I need to win counting the counting the rake it was like 54.5 percent or something if you cash that often you're going to make money over the long run and he says i'm pretty comfortable in thinking i'm gonna i'm gonna have more cash wins than 54 and a half percent of my of the games that i play in so i'm i'm gonna make money at this i'm not gonna make a million dollars i'm not gonna make five hundred thousand dollars a year but i'm gonna make enough to keep the lights on and pay the rent and he was playing lots of of the games. He was playing dozens and dozens of games per night, but it was all those 50 fifties or I think they also call them. I forget. There's another name for them where double ups, double ups. Yeah. Yeah. And he, that's all he played. And that was his way of approaching it in the, in a same, the same kind of long-term approach that you're using where he was looking at it as a season long endeavor, but he was approaching it just on a, I'm going to take that weighted coin and I'm going to flip it just often enough that I'm going to, I'm going to beat you just often enough that I'm going to make money at it. Yeah, I, I definitely know who you're talking about. I will also not say the name. Um, uh, it's definitely gotten harder and harder with each passing year to win at cash games at more than 50%, and you need to be up close to 55 to profit. It's still doable, uh, but the edges have gone down. The real issue is there aren't a lot of people that I've found that really find it entertaining enough to to grind it out like it's a very slow grind like when you talk about dfs everyone talks about the big top prize and it's supposed to be exciting and if this happens tonight i win ten thousand dollars um most people just seem to want that and don't have the patience to grind out what is essentially like a you know maybe a three or four percent roi over a season um but it's absolutely still there if you're willing to do it you have to be good. It's not like you anyone could just show up and do that or everyone would do it. It's still difficult, but still absolutely doable. Um, it's just a matter of what is your goal? What it, you know, are you gonna be happy putting in this kind of work for that kind of return? If you are, I think that's great. Um, but I don't find many people actually sticking with it. Because like and you really have to put in a lot of volume to make even more than, more than just a couple of cents here and there when you're talking that small of a return. But yes, if you have the willingness to do it like year after year, day after day, and you have, you know, you win 56% of the time, you, you will absolutely profit. I remember a few years ago that uh, there was a controversy when DFS was still fairly new about the, the, some of the big volume players were actually being given some kind of script access to the platforms so that they could computerize their all, all of these lineup permutations that they wanted to throw in, sometimes thousands of them, and then just press a button and send them all in rather than, like, if it's me, I'm sitting there with my mouse manually changing, you know, uh, Robbie Ray for uh, for Trevor Bauer on a bunch of lineups and then switching it back for a bunch more. Did What became of that, do you know? 
Well, so what happened is as things got legislated, um, the sites now officially allow those scripts. And so anyone is allowed to use a lineup builder that used to be you weren't supposed to use it, but some people built one and snuck it in. So the, the controversy doesn't exist anymore because it's now allowed and everyone has access to it. Um, meaning like at Roto Grinders, we have a lineup builder where you can push some buttons and build 150 lineups uh, as you wit. You can say, I want 50% Robbie Ray and 12 Astro stacks hit build and it builds them and you can throw them in DraftKings. That's Automatically? Correct. Oh, okay. So that is now five years ago when the controversy was like that was against site rules. But now they've legislated it in. There's access to all these lineup builders, and it's totally legal and on the up and up, and everyone can use them. So um, basically, now it's this is how most people play. Well, you mentioned, and we've talked about the idea of playing in the long term. How do you keep track of how your lineups are doing? Do you keep track of them in detail, tracking individual players, tracking how your stacks and pitcher choices match up? And how does your own track record in a given year affect your subsequent choices? So on like a, a short-term basis, I don't track it at all. Like I'm not trying to keep track of tonight. I know I have, how am I tracking that I have 40% Kyle Tucker and how does that affect it when Kyle Tucker gets a double? Um, I'm not at all tracking individual day long term. Um, I very closely track every different type of contest, type of buy-in level. How do I do, you know, in this type of contest on this site over the long run? That's what's more important is knowing, you know, over a three-year span playing 50-50s on FanDuel this is, this is how I'm doing. Like that stuff is very important to track, but I'm not trying to track, you know, tonight, how are my brave stacks doing? Is the goal of tracking the, the games and platforms to stop playing them? If you just realize that they're, they're not returning the way you want them to. Yeah. To figure out where you're supposed to be allocating your time and your resources. Like everyone's going to end up with a, a strength and a weakness. So some people, you know, shouldn't play cash games at all. Some people should play only cash games. Some people should do just single entry tournaments. Some people should do 150 lineups only and multi-entry. Um, so the, the, the more data you get to see your own strengths and weaknesses, the better. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Dave Potts from Roto Grinder. Dave, I'd like to wrap up these discussion by looking at some slumps, pumps, dumps, and jumps. Uh, let's start with the slump. This is a player you think is struggling but worth hanging on to. Yeah, I like your use of rhymes, by the Thanks. way, Patrick. I, uh, yeah, I teach a, a songwriting camp yeah. each summer. I had th this was last week, and we do a whole section on rhymes. Um, I, if I'd had this ahead of time, we this would have I would have written a song with these words. <laughs> but so a slump. Now, something I'll mention. I'm so like during the preseason, I'm very in tune with the season long crowd. Like everything is based on season long drafts. Where are guys going as we get into the season? I'm more focused on DFS and I'm aware of who the DFS industry is high on and concerned about and less aware of who is getting hyped up or dissed on in the season long community. Sure. So I'm kind of guessing on, I don't know if, I don't know if anyone is actually thinking about dumping this guy. Um, but a guy that I like that I'm going to put in the slump category is Zach Eflin. Um, 
he's been kind of up and down and all over. And like, as we're doing this show, like his last start, I think he allowed four home runs um, against the Giants. I, I just think this guy is legit, really good. And all these runs he's giving up look more fluky than anything. Um, you know, last year he, he had a whole bunch, like the strikeouts went way up. And I think the strikeouts can come back, but even now, like their average, his control is great. Like he looks to me kind of like the like the good version of Zach Grinky when Zach Grinky was good. Like I think that's the kind of pitcher he is. And I'm even hopeful. I have this little thing in the back of my head that tells me that the Phillies know what they're doing, and that's kind of what's happened to Zach Wheeler. And I, I think there's something in here with Eflin that has that kind of jump in him. So. Zachary Eflin. How about a pump, a player who's overachieving and that you might be thinking of selling high on? Um, so I like everybody, and I don't I don't want to say this about anybody. So I like I'm on board with everybody, and I love any speed I can get, but still this is Cedric Mullins thing. Uh, I'm j- I'm not really on board. I'm not buying the power. I'm really not buying that he's a 300 hitter. I think he's fine. And in general, I kind of like the Orioles, kind of. And I'm sure he's a very nice person. Um, but I would be very willing to trade Cedric Mullins if someone wanted him. How about a dump, an underachiever that you would replace at this point? Um, again, Patrick, I like everybody. I'm a people person. I, I would never dump anyone. Um, and that's part of why sometimes my teams are terrible because I don't dump anyone when they're bad. I think we might need to give up on on Lourdes Gurriel, um, especially now with the Springers back. I'm not even sure he's going to stay in that lineup every day, and if he does, he's probably going to bat eighth. Um, like I still like him. Like there's talent here, there's power here, but like he's not hitting the ball that well, and I don't see how they even use him. Like that team is so loaded. I'm just worried he doesn't even get to play anymore. He's definitely going to lose at bats with uh, Springer being back. Uh, I think the only path to playing time is if Springer gets hurt again, which is something we can't entirely rule out. But uh, I have Lourdes Gurriel on a team, and I'm not uh, I'm not optimistic. And I don't think I could dump him. I don't think anybody wants him because they all know, you know, when Springer got here, Gurriel uh, all of a sudden found himself some bench. How about a jump hitter? This is uh, somebody that you think is a target if he's available. Um. On my list, my my, I only have a jump pitcher written down. Um, do that first, and then I'll go back. Okay. How about a jump? Um, sorry. Yeah. How about a jump pitcher, Dave? Uh, this is a, a pitcher who, if he's available, should be a target. So, again, this is a guy like I have these random guys that I just really like more than I know that I'm supposed to. And they're probably definitely not as good as I think they are. And yet that means you can get him. Like he might be on a waiver wire, depending on your league, and you could definitely trade for him if you want him. Patrick, I am a Mike Miner fan. Um he's just the kind of guy that like he's he's not amazing. He's kind of boring. He plays for the Royals. Nobody really wants him. Sometimes he gives up three home runs. Um but, you know, he's just really good. Like, he just throws 100 pitches, seven innings. He throws a bunch of strikes. He gets above average strikeouts. 
and nobody like nobody cares about these people. I feel bad for the Mike Miners of the world. Like he's good. What's the problem? And how about a jump hitter, a target if he's available? I don't think Alec Baum is really this bad. Um, like he should like he should be waiver wire guy. Like you shouldn't have to trade for Alec Baum. Like I'm not recommending that. But anyone who's like shown he came up, he looked okay for a little while. He was good in the minors. Like he never struck out at all in the minors. He didn't really strike out last year. So I'm not really sure that he's going to strike out that much. I don't think he's like a 240 hitter. Like I think he's like a 270 hitter with some power. Um, and I say him just because he's, he's basically waiver wire material. Like I'm not, again, I'm not saying run out and trade for this mediocre guy who hits seventh for the Phillies. I'm saying, I don't think he's, he's not Elvis Andrus or, or something. I think he's okay. And I would also say, um, similar on that. I don't know how far down you want to go. Um, Gregory Polanco, I still think is good. Uh, mostly I thought he was good in 2018. I still think it's there. I really do. Um, I mean, the guy hit like 150 last year and he's sitting like 200 this year. But one like general overarching theme on everyone I'm looking at, and this is more of a DFS thing, but it does apply to season long. I just don't care what a guy's batting average is at all. Um, like I could list a whole group of these guys that I say you get because their batting average stinks. Like Eugenio Suarez, like go get him. Like sure. He's batting like 180. He'll probably bat like 230 the rest of the way. And he's still going to hit another 20 homers. Like I think the, the best way to get someone in this category of who can I seek out is just take a guy that nobody likes because the batting average stinks. Well, everyone's batting average stinks. And so if a guy goes up to like 220, like you're fine with that. And so if you don't want to go as low as Alec Baum, then go to like Eugenio Suarez and just whoever you're trying to trade with say, this guy's batting 175. He stinks. I'll trade you anything for him. I'll trade you a pair of socks for him. And then the rest of the way, he hits 230 which is totally fine in this day and age. I, I just think, I think batting average in general is just over talked about because everyone's batting average stinks. Dave Potts slump is Zach Eflin of Philadelphia. His pump, Cedric Mullins of Baltimore, a dump, uh, Lourdes Gurriel of Toronto, a jump hitter, Alec Bohm of Philadelphia, Gregory Polanco of Pittsburgh, and a jump pitcher, Mike Miner of the Royals. Dave, this has been great to remind our listeners where they can keep up with Dave Potts. So on Twitter, you can find me at Dave Potts 2. That is the number two. Um, all my content is on Roto Grinders. It's, I write an article every day. I do uh, webcasts three or four days a week, all kinds of stuff on there. Um, if you're interested more in the uh, music side of things, DavePotts.com will have songs and whatnot from the days of yore. Um, and I'm pretty easy, pretty easy to find. Come, come see me in, in Vegas next year for the NFBC. Uh, if we ever get back out to Arizona for Baseball HQ, you'll be able to find me out there. I'm around. You mentioned the the music part of your life. I used to be a music journalist. I know you do uh, folk music, you said, folk style music. Uh, I always ask about the songwriting process. How do you go about writing a song? The majority of the time, I am I come up with 
a like w one line or a little catchphrase with the idea of what that song is and, and write from that. Um, and usually I'll get the, you know, one or two lines and go ahead and put that to music and I'll get my sort of melody and I'll know what the song's about and I'll just have this little nugget and then I'll kind of expand out from there. I'm not a full lyrics first or a full music first. It's usually let's get this, this idea have in my head kind of an outline of what the story is and then uh, music and lyrics will come together. Well, we do have one of your songs here, Dave. Uh, you sent it to us. It's called $12.99, $12.99. Tell us about this song. So I, I live in Auburn, Alabama, and after growing up in Colorado, and the first time I ever traveled to Auburn was before I moved here. And I, I didn't actually know that it got cold in March in Alabama. So um, I had to buy a sweatshirt. And so I bought uh, a gray hooded sweatshirt that said Auburn on it for $12.99. And then a couple years later, I ended up moving to Auburn and that sweatshirt kind of went with me a lot of places for a decade or so. So that's more or less the story of me and my sweatshirt. From the album of the same name, uh, we'll go out here with Dave Potts singing his song $12.99. And Dave, thanks again for joining. Thank you so much. The pocket is torn from the years it's spent catching car keys and the spare change You can tell it's been worn from the tears and the stitching This old sweatshirt seen better days In March 96 I was traveling through this town And wanted a cheap souvenir I would never have guessed from the name on the chest One day I'd end up living here Chance to stay warm for the night. Now in my mind, it takes me straight back to that place and that time. It's amazing the things you can buy for twelve ninety-nine. I can still picture the red in her face. Just as clear as this stain on the sleeve She was convinced that she'd ruined our first date When she spilled her coffee on me But the heat was no match for the look that she had As the air outside kept getting colder We drove to the beach and she shivered beside me And had draped it over her shoulder chance to stay warm for that night and now in my mind it takes me straight back to that place and that time it's amazing the things you can buy for $12.99 it's just 13 bucks at the courthouse downtown for the papers to make her my bride Dig through the pocket and come up one coin short But the judge says that he'll let it slide It's amazing the things you can buy Twelve ninety-nine Bought me the chance to look back on my life One day 
Dave Potts writes for Roto-Grinder. We'll take a quick break here, then we're back with our HQ commentaries. The Minor League Minute, Frequent Flyer, and Extra Innings are all coming up. But right now it's time in the show when I get to let you know about some of the great content that lets us say BaseballHQ.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the Big Hurt, injury analysts Matthew Cedarholm and Jim Ferretti take a look at the sticky situation, as Ray and I discussed earlier. In Playing Time Tomorrow, analyst Matt Dodge looks at who's hot, who's not, and who might help among all five teams in the American League Central Division. And Jock Thompson looks at all the rosters in the American League West, including Mike Trout's rehab and Mitch Moreland's struggles. In the GM's office, again, as Ray and I discussed earlier, he and co-general manager Brent Hershey discussed the effects of Major League Baseball's crackdown on the sticky stuff. And those are just three articles among dozens, a small sampling of all the great content you'll find at BaseballHQ.com all the time. Player performance validation in facts and flukes, news updates in playing time today, and roster forecasting in playing time tomorrow. We have buyer's guides for hitters, starting pitchers, and relievers. There's fantasy market analysis in Brad Coleman's Market Pulse column. And of course, injury analysis in Matt Cedarholm's column, The Big Hurt, and groundbreaking fantasy baseball research. As well, we have tools like the player projections updated every day, daily dashboards, pitcher matchups, planners, and leading indicators for hitters and pitchers. Add it all up, you get expert content plus tools you can use to improve your teams and win your leagues. And they're why we call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. PD here. Time now for our regular commentaries. The Frequent Flyer and My Extra Innings comment are coming up. And leading off, it's the Minor League Minute. And here with a look at Angels left-hander Reed Detmers is Baseball HQ Minor Leagues analyst Rob Gordon. When healthy, the Los Angeles Angels feature one of the deeper lineups in the American League. And even with Mike Trout on the IL since May 17th, the Angels have scored the fifth most runs in the AL. But once again, their pitching staff has let them down, and heading into July, they have a team ERA of 4.87, ahead of only the Twins and the Orioles. In fact, the Angels haven't had a team ERA below 5 since 2018. While rebuilding their pitching staff isn't going to happen overnight, the Angels' Reed Detmer has the stuff to be a front-of-the-rotation starter for years to come. Detmer is the 10th overall pick in the 2020 draft, after a standout career at the University of Louisville, attacks hitters with a plus-four pitch mix. When drafted, Detmers featured an average 90-92 mile-an-hour fastball, but thanks to a mechanical tweak and better conditioning, Detmers' heater now sits at 92-95 with good arm side run and plus spin rates that enable him to beat hitters up in the zone. Detmers also features a plus two-plane low 70s curveball, a sharp late-breaking slider, and an above-average changeup. All four offerings come out of the same tunnel, enabling him to keep hitters off balance. Detmer spent 2020 at the Angels' alternate training site and had to wait to 2021 to make his professional debut. To their credit, the Angels challenged him by giving him a posting at AA Rocket City, and after a rough first start that saw him give up three hits and three earned runs in an inning and two-thirds of work, Detmers has been lights out since, and after eight starts, the 21-year-old left-hander is now 2-2 with a 3.34 ERA. Detmers has given up just 13 walks while punching out 60 batters in 35 innings of work, good for a 15.4 strikeout per nine. 
With the Angels already 10.5 games behind the division-leading Astros, it's extremely unlikely that Detmers will make his MLB debut in 2021, but he should be a AAA soon and has the stuff and pitchability to be a solid number 2 starter by 2022. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Baseball HQ minor league analyst Rob Gordon. Rob Gordon is a member of the Baseball HQ scouting team and has his minor league minute here on Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for the Frequent Flyer, a commentary on players who might be available in your free agent pool and who have the potential to get enough playing time and have enough production to make them worth considering for a spot on your roster. Here with a look at Miami right-hander Anthony Bender is Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. He's got probably the best stuff out there, said Miami Marlins manager Don Mattingly, responding to calls for 26-year-old Miami Marlins right-hander Anthony Bender to be the back-end guy, according to a June 5th Miami Herald article. Probably the best stuff out there. No matter what the context, that's a pretty bold statement by a manager, especially Don Mattingly. Even so, it's hard to argue with Anthony Bender's results so far. Through 19 appearances, Anthony Bender has struck out 23 while only walking 5. That translates to a command ratio of 4.6 strikeouts to walks, where we at BaseballHQ.com recommend targeting pitchers with command ratios of 3 strikeouts to walks or higher. More importantly, in 19 appearances, Anthony Bender has not allowed a single earned run thus far in 2021. Wow, maybe he does have the best stuff out there. Then again, maybe not. Anthony Bender's 0.00 ERA in 2021 really has nowhere else to go but up. That's why 26-year-old Miami Marlins reliever Anthony Bender, like all of our frequent flyers, should be considered to be a long shot. Maybe worth a flyer if he is still available in your league. Okay, We'll admit, perhaps predicting that Anthony Bender's 0.00 ERA is unsustainable at the major league level may seem, well, obvious. However, consider this. In 19 appearances, 70 batters faced, Anthony Bender has only allowed 8 hits. Impressive. More importantly, all 8 hits were singles, no extra base hits. Wow, that's amazing. Here's something else. Despite having a 97-mile-per-hour four-seam fastball in his arsenal, Anthony Bender relies heavily on a filthy sinker-slider combination comprising 96% of his pitch selection. And, as you probably already know, a filthy sinker-slider combination usually leads to ground balls and heads ground ball outs, further leading to a lower ERA generally. In other words, that filthy combination has produced no extra base hits and an extreme ground ball rate of 52.5% in 2021. Best of all, Anthony Bender jumped to making his Major League debut on May 5th, 2021, all the way from the Milwaukee Milkmen in the Independent American Association, apparently where pro baseball is utterly different according to the Milkmen slogan. So you might say that this Milkman... Anthony Bender, wait for it, will deliver as our frequent flyer for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky of BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky has his frequent flyer commentary here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for Extra Innings, my comment on baseball and fantasy baseball. And this week I'd like to talk about the expectations we have for Wander Franco based on all the previous Wander Francos. 
Earlier in the podcast, I talked about Wander Franco with a couple of our guests, Ray Murphy and, of course, Dave Potts, and it got me to thinking about how likely it is that we can figure out how a player's going to be based on his first exposure to the big leagues. It's way too early to talk about Wander Franco in those terms. He only has a couple of games under his belt, but the Rays have 88 games left in the season, so I thought what I'd do is I'd go to baseballreference.com, actually to their Stathead subsidiary, and I'd look around to find a lot of players through their first 88 career games from, say, 2016 through 21. For the first cut, I filtered for a 265 batting average. That seemed like a pretty reasonable level to expect from a player that you'd want to have on your roster. That cut the list down to 210 hitters, with the high batting average 343 by Lewis Arise, and five right at the cutoff point of 265. The second cutdown was for 12 home runs. That's 20 home runs in 150 games played, prorated to the 88. This was a huge cutdown, 56 left after 154 players were cut. The high remaining player, Cody Bellinger, who had 30 home runs in his first 88 games, but listen to the list of casualties. Sal Perez, Mike Trout, Francisco Lindor, the Starlings, Castro and Marte, Tim Anderson, Xander Bogarts, Marcelo Zuna, Christian Yelich, Jose Altuve, Charlie Blackman, the aforementioned Arise, Whit Merrifield, and listen to this, DJ LeMahieu. In his first 88 games, how many home runs do you think he had? One in 200 plate appearances. The third cut was for 44 RBIs, which prorates to 75 in the full season. Only 14 casualties this time on the cut, including Trey Turner, Randy Rosarena, Austin Meadows, and Fran Mil Reyes, who was the lowest on the list at 31, despite his 16 home runs. The high RBI guy threw 88 games, Jordan Alvarez, who had 82, which prorates to 140 RBIs in 150 games. The fourth cut, the same 44 for runs, prorated to 75 in a 150-game season. 17 more cuts, including Vladdy, Lourdes Gurriel, Trey Mancini, Ryan Mountcastle. Not so good for the American League East, I guess. The high-run scorer, Aaron Judge, at 68, which prorates to 116 in 150 games played. 27 left. Now, before we go on, if you're wondering, I didn't include stolen bases because they're so specialized. 15 of the last 27 had five or fewer stolen bases, and the top guy was Jason Kipnis, who had 18 stolen bases through his first 88 games. So if you add it all up, I think there's a chance that through 88 games, Wander Franco could end up like some of the bigger names who survived all these cuts. Fernando Tatis, for example, Ronald Acuna, Bo Bichette, Rafael Devers, Juan Soto, and Jordan Alvarez. On the downside, there's a few duds who slipped through the filters. Keston Hiura struggled mightily since his debut. Devon Travis of Toronto couldn't stay on the field. Nick Williams of Philadelphia started pretty well, and then just disappeared from Philadelphia faster than Nick Foles. Aledmus Diaz got through the filters as well, but it's safe to say he got through them to become pretty much just a journeyman. So what am I expecting from Wander Franco? About the average line for the remaining 27 hitters, 19 home runs, 55, 56 runs and RBIs each, and about a 289 batting average. That seems like a pretty fair mid-range for what we should expect from Wander Franco, but of course, your mileage may vary. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick Davitt. I have my extra innings commentary here on Baseball HQ Radio every week. 
And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, June the 25th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 30 of the 2021 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guest expert for this Friday full edition, Dave Potts from Roto-Grinder. Dave is one of the most successful fantasy baseball managers in the business, a tremendously hard worker at that, and his writing for Roto-Grinders, and generally just a really nice guy. Good musician, too, I think you'll agree. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Ray Murphy. Our Minor League Minute commentator was Baseball HQ Minor Leagues analyst Rob Gordon. And our frequent flyer commentator was Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. I'm Patrick Davitt, your extra innings commentator and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I sure hope to see you on those BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. And remember, you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also follow my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to Stitcher or Pocket Cast, iTunes, wherever you catch your pods, and leave Baseball HQ Radio a good review and a rating. It really does help us find new listeners, and new listeners help us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again in seven days with another Friday full edition of the podcast with fantasy baseball intelligence for winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. See you next Friday. And for now, so long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com, where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.